VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, September the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 26, so a little bit of a smoky, hazy past few days. You know, we get a nice, decent bit of weather. Oh, yeah, first off, big thanks to Linda Swain for sitting in for me for a few days while I took some time off. And, yeah, they're a bit smoky out. There's some air quality uh, statements that have been issued. So, yeah, what can you do? Poor old Jays. Boy, oh, boy. Second straight loss to the New York Yankees last night. Yankee slugger Aaron Judge with a couple of two-run knocks, four RBIs. And this guy, Cole Garrett, I mean, I'm so sick of looking at him. The Jays have scored one run on him in 29 innings. Last night, a complete game, two-hitter shutout. Mm, okay, so here we go. It was fun the other night to see Dawson Mercer and Alex Newhook both on the ice playing against each other. Both hit the scoreboard. Mercer scored. Newhook had an assist. And I think I saw a picture of Newhook floating around yesterday with an A on his jersey. I don't know what that is all about. But anyway, young Zach Dean, he also got a look in with the St. Louis Blues the other night. Had an assist as well. So we'll see what shakes out there. First big major competition of the curling season happening in Oakville, Ontario right now. It's the Points Bet Invitational. The top 16 men and women's teams are kicking off this elite part of the season. Three hundred. $50,000 purse up for grabs. Team Guzhu last night with a win to go 1 0. It's a single knockout, so there you go. And for sports fans, and notably golf fans, one more sleep until the Ryder Cup. One of my favorite sports competitions across the gamut of all the sports that I'm a fan of and that I watch. So the Ryder Cup, you want to take it on? Talk about that? <laughs> sure, you do. Oh, yeah, quick baseball note. So, you know, there's only nine players in the major leagues now hitting 300. Seems like an absurdly low number. It was on this date in history, 41 years, pardon me, uh, 82 years ago, 1941, Ted Williams. The splendid splinter hit 406 to finish off the baseball season. No one's come close to 400 since. And it was Ted Williams' stated goal that when he was done, he wanted people to say, there goes Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. He probably is. Okay, moving on. So I'm not really surprised, but and nor do I have any real experience or expertise in the way we assess and evaluate students and their absorption of the curriculum. But the students have not been taking public exams in grade 12 now for a number of years. And now that's going to be a permanent feature. So no more publics. Of course, that will be welcome news in many corners, whether it be for admin or teachers, and most importantly, the students. You know, they talk about the pressure cooker that is a public exam. And over the years, it could be worth as much as 50% of your overall mark. So, yeah, the pressure was on. So now they say they're going to have a new evaluation model in place for the 2024, or pardon me, the 25-26 school year. Looking at a couple of different options available, well, let's see what this first one says. The first is the introduction of a numeracy and literacy assessments for students of grades 10, 11, and 12 that measures a student's skills in realistic situations, whatever that means. Second is a modular course uh, evaluation. Take place three times throughout the school year and select 3,000 or upper-level courses, including English, math, and science. Okay. Regarding the pressure cooker, I remember back when we were in high school, I thought the smartest play to keep you interested and involved and attentive was what they did at Gonzaga High School. Like at Rice, we wrote Publix. At Gonzaga, if you achieved an 80% grade leading up to the Publix, you had the opportunity not to write it. So you took the grade based on your hard work and determination and study throughout the entirety of the school year. That made a lot of sense to me. 
The questions people will ask is whether or not people, students graduating high school will be prepared for post-secondary because we know what happens then. There's less and less one-on-one -on -one tutelage because, the, of course, the instructors and professors have a massive course load and a massive number of students that they're dealing with through the course of a semester. So I think that would be the number one question. You know, whether it be about competition and getting into some of the elite universities across the country, and yes, preparation to attend whatever university, including Memorial. So those are the questions I would have. And pressure, sometimes pressure is good. You know, too much can be overwhelming and people may absolutely crack or crumble under the pressure and flunk a public exam. Maybe they had the information in their head, but given the pressure, were unable to put it through their fingers onto their pen and uh, give it the attention it needs on a public, but it's going away. I don't know what you think about that. And sticking with the schools, I'm dealing with three or four different families about issues regarding violence. One is a story of a student being attacked in the class in the classroom where the teacher was there. Then there are stories from another couple of schools where there's a couple of kids that are being eyeballed by the swarm. So we of course know that those who are willing to be part of a mob and swarm a single student, you know, whether it be a dozen or 15 of them. So the questions are legitimate coming from these concerned parents. What exactly is going on here? You know, people were quick to remember what happened to PwC last year, and one kid really badly beaten. So some of these stories are absolutely out of control. So what is the attention to violence in the school? What is the attention to violence in the playground or the parking lot? Don't have much information on that front. And of course, you know, we wonder what the conversation sounds like and looks like in school with yet another arrest made of someone who's using fake social media accounts to lure children and or adults for sex. We've seen the stories, they're alarming. And the conversation, as tricky as it is, I hope that the teachers have figured out a way to have it. And I would imagine more and more parents watching the evening news or listening to this program know that regardless of the traumatic conversation that it is, it has to be had. So what do you think? Also, this bit about, you know, the smoking and vaping ban on all government property. Visitors, employees, contractors can't smoke in the parking lot, by the door, or even in your vehicle. I don't know how that's going to work. And I know what the intended goal is to, you know, keep the smoke away from the building. Okay. And then it's maybe to encourage people to quit, which uh, it seems highly unlikely that the inability to smoke in the parking lot at work is going to make you quit, but it remains to be seen. The big question is, how's it going to be enforced? And who's enforcing it? Say, for instance, at school. As I've said before, you drive by a junior high or a high school during lunchtime, you can see the bellows of vape for in, uh, in particular. So who's charged with that particular piece of business? Uh, just one second, I have a quick sip of coffee. We're back. Okay. This story here is absolutely predictable. It's been coming for a while. It's not that long ago the province of Nova Scotia was here in this province recruiting healthcare professionals. At the time, I believe it was respiratory therapists or radiation technologists. I can't remember which one it was, but it happened. Now we're told that the province of Nova, uh, Saskatchewan, pardon me, has some of their government staff here poaching healthcare professionals. You know, where does this end is the question. Because every province is struggling, the territories are struggling, countries around the world are struggling to get healthcare professionals in the fold. So where's the outcome here? So the minister responsible, Tom Osborne, of course, says that this crosses a line. This provincial boundary is not being respected, and other provinces come to take our healthcare professionals, which we need so badly, from us to work in Saskatchewan. So the outcome there is that, as Allison said in the VOCM newscast, is that the province is now planning to do the old tit-for-tat. The question is, as I said, where does this end? 
This is not going to improve health care for any province. You know, if we're going to talk about winners and losers, the haves, the provinces that can afford to spend more and more on individual healthcare professionals across the entire landscape of HCWs. But this is a massive problem. I don't think it's helpful to play tit for tat, and I know the federal government is quick to shrug its shoulders on a variety of fronts, whether it be housing, albeit some recent announcements on GST and what have you, and same thing on healthcare. You know, it's a provincial jurisdiction. That's not incorrect. But when we have a potential bidding war that's only going to escalate because the pressure's on politicians across the country to bring more doctors, nurses, LPNs, IRNs, all the way through it, war. We need more. Okay, so does the federal government need to offer some guidance here? You know, and I don't really care for the federal government getting involved in things that are absolutely up to the provinces, but this is going to be a massive concern. We've been talking about this on this program for quite a long time. If indeed, just, just think about it. This province may not be the most attractive place to live for certain healthcare professionals or for individuals. It's hard and expensive to get in and out of here. The weather could be quite harsh in certain parts of the province. Housing concerns, which are not unique to this province, but they're very, very real. So where does this all end? Is it about taking more control? Is it about inside the world of post-secondary just to expand the offering and the number of seats? Yes, it's gone from 80 to 19 months medical school. Good news. There has been an expansion in the registered nurses program. Good news. But if we don't take full-on control here, and it's fine to want to recruit around the world, and if it works, great. Doctors in Ireland, nurses in India, Australia, the U wherever. You know, there are some questions about Indian nurses that have been recruited and the opportunity to get a work visa, given the allegations that the prime minister's made about an assassination in B.C. and the Indian government, through their agents, their responsibility. But unless we take full-on control here, because even some of the incentives offered, what's the likelihood of someone coming here who's not from here Setting up shop, take advantage of the three years' worth of incentives, and then when their skills have been upgraded and the bidding work continues, whether or not they'll stay is a looming and important question that we don't really have answers to. So that's the Saskatchewan story. I think it's bigger than that one province and what they're doing here. And one story that absolutely doesn't get enough attention in the world of healthcare, and it's not only healthcare, it's criminal justice, it's in the school system, is the whole 99 vacancies in social work. You know what that means for their expanded course load or workload that they were already having a very difficult time to manage. And so that 99 vacancy issue, we can take that on. What's, you know, just like everything else, nothing happens overnight. There was a survey of social workers pre-pandemic that raised all the red flags required. And now where we find ourselves, 99 vacancies out of 301, 381 positions, obviously a huge problem. All right, and talk about conflicting stories. So we've seen reported in the news based on access to information about how much money the province spends on emergency shelters. It's a big number. So $10.5 million on emergency shelters in 2022. So whether that be for the government-owned and operated emergency shelters and or hotels or the private sector that is involved in an emergency shelter, does not include hotel rooms for newcomers, notably Ukrainian newcomers. So the number is bigger than that. At the exact same time, now some of that money to be refocused, whether it be more money from the, for the housing corporation to reopen some of the vacant units, there's some specific numbers for Cornerbrook, around 800 units out there, 53 are unavailable because they're just boarded up. So how do we make sure we're on the right track with money? There's always going to be the need for an emergency shelter. I mean, just look yesterday when the province talked about opening another one, the safe haven shelter, 40-bed emergency shelter, additional 30-person warming shelter in, the, in, the, in that uh, facility for the upcoming winter months. So yes, we have to have it, 
But when we talked about affordable units, and we know that there's construction ongoing from some 750, but $10.5 million in emergency shelters, whether it be public, private, hotels, what have you, are we really on the right track? It reminds me, it's much akin to how we deal with food. You know, this does kind of come up against a failure in governance. Reliance on food banks, reliance on emergency shelters, I don't think we're on the right track. Now, $10.5 million is not a massive amount of money inside a 9 or $10 billion budget, but it's getting the little things right. And well, actually, I should take that back. Housing is not a little thing. Those who find themselves in the predicament that needs an emergency shelter is not a little thing, but that money is pretty significant, and whether or not that's the right thing to be at with that money and how we're dealing with things and a very much a reactionary process versus you know, trying to deal with how you, who you are, where you are, how you became reliant on a mercy shelter, so we can take it on. Uh, a couple of quick ones before we get your call. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Okay. So first, it was Stella. Mental health support dog and the RNC have, for some unknown reason, taken Stella out of the fold. Real shame. And now we find out that the uh, Stable Life Incorporated and their free equine assistance program called Spirit Horse, which was created back in 2013, did important work. They don't have the core funding to keep going. So yet another example of someone trying to fill the gaps as a private citizen to come up with a play and a plan, because things like equine therapy, Stella, things like that, those programs work. They're extremely helpful. So when we are told that we're supposed to be spending some 9% of the annual budget here on mental health, are we there? I don't think so. The most recent report didn't indicate 9% to me, but it's things like those two operations. Now remember, Stella was funded in full by Jim Hines, private citizen. And so for Stable Life Incorporated, Spirit Horse to go by the wayside as well, you know, the whole conversation regarding mental health, you know we're always open and up for it here on this program to share your own personal stories or whatever the case may be. All right, a couple of quick ones before we get to you. All right, no surprise that the province has ongoing conversations with the province of Quebec regarding the Upper Churchill. Premier Legault of Quebec came here to talk about it just a couple of months ago. Now at a conference that was in Quebec City, uh, not only the uh, Eastern Canadian premiers, but also New England governors. They were there, and of course the conversation focusing on the Upper Churchill. You know, David Brazel, uh, the current leader of the PCs, asking questions, fair enough. I'd like to know more information. I don't expect we're going to get anything, nor do I want anything that's going to jeopardize the conversation and the negotiation, but we're not even really sure what they're talking about. So, you know, the Premier, in a bit of Jerry Maguire, has, has shown me the money. So we need some money for redress between now and 2041. Legault talks about extending the contract, and then, absolutely notably, he says to build Gull Island. We never get an update on Gull around here. And Legault, if you take his word for it, and it's hard to know what he knows, what he believes, what he thinks could or should be done, but he's always talking about Gull Island. And Brazil also asks an important question, is the federal government involved here? The likelihood is yes, because what was once simply a liberal branding exercise with the Atlantic Loop now has a bit more teeth because the, uh, the federal government has said they would pay about two-thirds of the forecasted $6.5, $6.8 billion project. And yes, that market would be with the New England governors and potentially outside New England. So, yeah, good questions. What exactly are we even talking about? So we're not going to get inside that room. But... The province itself created a 2041 committee to actually look at what 2041 means. In some people's minds, it means the, let the good times roll. 
the golden goose and all the golden eggs will be ours in 2041. Well, that's probably not the case. You know, Quebec will still have an equity stake. And yeah, we should have redress between now and 41. And yes, the contract has to look better than $28 billion for Quebec since 1969 versus 2 or $3 billion for us. But those are big questions. It'd be nice to know a little bit more, even if we just should get a look at what the local committee has understood about what 2041 means. You know, explain that much to us, because then we'll be better positioned to understand the outcomes of these negotiations, to ask better, more detailed questions about 41, if we had some details as to what it really means. But I don't think it's the panacea that some people think it might be. What do you think? And all regarding Gull Island, the Inu Nation have said quite clearly, they will give no approvals for any more construction, hydro development on the Grand River because of the rate mitigation, which is going to cost them about a, a billion dollars. And then there's lots of controversy regarding uh, apologies that the Premier is going to make to uh, residential school survivors the, with the group represented by the NCC. So we can get into that a little further, but anyway, let's go. Last one, Federal Front. Man, oh man, this is embarrassing. You know, so people throw around, you're a Nazi, and you're a commie, and you're all those types of things. Maybe sometimes not knowing exactly what that means, but you've heard the story, and it is horrendous, it's ridiculous, and it's a self-inflicted wound that embarrasses all of us. Not one, but two standing ovations in the House of Commons for an actual Nazi. How does this happen? So as a result, the speaker, Anthony Rota, this person was on his guest list. He has stepped down. The prime minister resigned, uh, pardon me, the prime minister uh, apologized on behalf of parliament yesterday. Takes no responsibility. But when Ukrainian President Zelensky was in the House of Commons, and yes, okay, the Parliamentary Protective Service does not report to the prime minister. All right, the RCP does not report to the Prime Minister, fair enough. But with such high stakes on the line here, wouldn't it have been pretty important for the Prime Minister's office to be very clear? Because all members of Parliament are allowed to invite whoever they want. And, you know, they should know how Parliament works. We will indeed see very big political opportunity gobbled up here. But the Prime Minister might not be directly at fault. <laughs> okay. But with this issue and the Zelensky and others being welcomed, applauded, and standing ovations offered, it's simply not good enough. I mean, talk about what's going on here. The, an actual Nazi. How did anybody, or how did the protocol committee, how did uh, Speaker Anthony Rota, how did anyone, even including the Prime Minister's office, which is not necessarily their actual technical responsibility, but can they please do better than this? It's dreadful. And a, a self-inflicted wound that reflects badly not only on the House of Commons, not only on Parliament, but on the rest of us. So just pathetic, you know? And so apologies are all fine and dandy, but how does this stuff happen? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show that requires your participation. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, my question is, you're talking about homelessness. Uh, the government put money back into it when it's okay. So I got, uh, sorry, nervous. Take I got, uh, 
RSPs. RSPs have been taken out every year. This year is eight months trying to get out my RSPs, but the government says I can't have them. Uh, so I have a concession stand I had shut down because the price of oil went from 2021-22 for uh, $33, 16 liters. Today is 75 to $79. The price of French fries went from six nine nine a bag to eleven forty five a bag. Mm-hmm. Where's where's the justification? I have brothers in Toronto. They said prices are going down. Here is still going up. I'm in Goose Bay. Here is still going up. Yeah, I think Labrador so has every- sure. Labrador has an unfortunate, very unique situation with the price of stuff. I mean, people send me pictures all the time. I can't get over it. I, I don't know how people make it in Labrador. Now I know a lot of people make a good living at some of the big mines and what have you, but not everybody's working for big money in Labrador. And, and I think food is maybe a bit of a different issue regarding who can make a, a difference here. You know, we point the finger at the so-called greedy corporations, and now the government is threatening them with taxes or fines or whatever if they don't stabilize food prices by Thanksgiving. I'm not so sure that's the right play either, but where do you think the responsibility lies? Because the government doesn't really have direct intervention beyond supply management. We know dairy products, what have you, but no real direct involvement with pricing of food. So where, where do you think we should go? Well, they, they, they don't, don't in the food, but they do in the fuel. Surcharges are going up. I, I price I price my food out to I can't serve a customer five dollars for one French fry. You know what I'm saying? I understand. So if you if you're putting up a surcharge on stuff being tra- brought in, uh, you're driving up the food prices. So the fuel needs to go down. Yeah, uh, price of fuel, of course, the government's not really big on that outside of taxes, and I think that's a fair conversation people uh, people are having about it. You know, like the 10-cent federal excise tax has never changed since it was imposed. The concept of putting tax on a tax, now the implication of the carbon tax and incoming clean fuel regulations, there are absolutely levers the government can pull on fuels, no doubt about it. Right, so uh, on the preamble, you had about homelessness. Yep. Okay, I'll go back to that. I'm almost bankrupt because I can't get at my RSPs. They got my RSPs says I can't have them. So if I go bankrupt and I got money in the bank, why why can't I get my, my money to keep me going? Why can't you? Or they must be telling you why. No. Eight months I've waited for an answer to come out. It's some... It's locked in for some reason, but if I'm going bankrupt and I got $50,000 in the bank, do you think you'd give me my money? Yeah, I, I've never tried to get at mine. My understanding was that you could take them before the mature, but there was something like a 20% federal tax on the pre-maturity withdrawal of your RRSP. I didn't know there was a reason why. You just simply know was the answer without any further information. I've tried for eight months, nine months now. Okay. I'm not sure what to say to that. Great. So it's my money. I work for it. Why can't I have it? Fair question. Instead of, and instead of me going, say, to the homeless shelter or having to get, sell my house or live on the street, why, why does the government hold back your money? It was my question to them, but I can't get no answers. Yeah, and of course, that's a federal issue. So <laughs> if, uh, if it was me, I suppose I'd be in contact with the federal member for your area, which, of course, is liberal member Yvonne Jones, because there's got to be an answer yeah. beyond no. Yvonne Jones, yeah. She told when to talk and when not to talk. 
Well, I mean, ask a staffer if they can dig in on this for you to help you understand what the issue is regarding trying to get access to your money. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty well what I got. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate your time. Good luck, Dan. Thank you. Right, take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, like last week we had uh, economist Trevor Tallman talking about the federal government's play here. You know, they summoned all the big five CEOs to Ottawa to talk about food pricing. It's a huge pressure point. You know, there's all kinds of policies that will be part of the next federal campaign. But housing and food are probably going to dominate the conversation. You know, whether or not it's a good play, it doesn't look like it. You know, when you break it down, some of the input costs, you know, even when you talk about uh, corporate revenues here and profits, their profits are up, but just marginally. And that's not to excuse them because they're still making a great buck, but their margins are pretty thin. But the input costs, you know, fertilizer, for instance, and those things are coming down. So will that mean a decrease in price? Maybe not. Will it mean a stabilized price? Hopefully so. So anyway, you want to tackle that kind of stuff, we can do it. Before we get to the break, let's get an update or a public service announcement on a presentation from the Marystown Shipyard Families Alliance. Good morning, Bernadine. You're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. My name is Bernadine Bennett. I'm the co-chair of the Marystown Shipyard Families Alliance Incorporated. Uh, Our group will be making a presentation as a delegation uh, to the town of Marystown, and it will be um, Tuesday, October 3rd at 7 p.m. at Marystown Town Hall. And uh, the reason for this, um, excuse me, delegation is to present to the town in the uh, in the hopes that uh, we will have the backing and the support of our town moving forward with the uh, Marystown Shipyard Occupational Disease Falls. So that's Tuesday, October 3rd at 7 p.m. And so you've been fighting the good fight for quite a long time here. Has this presentation ever been made to council? Have you ever had prior support from council formally? Uh, We did make a presentation back in uh, 2007. And um, uh, sadly, for 17 years, for as long as we've been around, we've never had the support of our town under the previous administration. However, we have a new administration, a new mayor, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, yeah, just moving forward with the town in that regard. So we're looking forward to Tuesday's night meeting, and we're encouraging as many people to come out as possible. It's, it's not just to do primarily with the injured workers. It's to do with the uh, injured workers, their families, and the uh, and the environment, so uh, it's it's an important presentation. It's uh, going to be very informative. Although we only have ten minutes, but we can say a lot in ten minutes. And um, so um, yeah, so we're seeking support, and and that's the the goal of our meeting. I appreciate the time and good luck with it. Hopefully, there's big attendance. Thank you, Patty. We appreciate that. No problem, Bert. Have a good day. Good luck. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about. The sinking of the Silver Condor. So it happened a few days ago off Quebec's lower north shore. Six crew were in the water, three dead. We're going to speak about that. And then whatever's on your mind right after this. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Merv. You're on the air. Good morning, uh, Patty. Thank you for putting me on. So here we go again. You know, we're having another conversation about uh, um, fishing vessel safety, the lost at sea, and fatalities. Um, uh, before I say anything, of course, I want to send my condolences uh, to the families and the communities of, of the lost individuals 
from the fishing vessel uh, Silver Condor, which uh, sank um, early Monday morning, uh, fishing out of um, Blancebalon. I think it happened 20 nautical miles or so from the La Tabier uh, community and Quebec's um, North Shore, Lower North Shore. Um, so, you know, it just came, as you know, uh, right on the heels of the loss of the of three uh, fish harvesters out of Fleur de Lee, Coachman's Cove area. And uh, mark your calendars, uh, Patty, every year, almost every month. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing it again, and we we have the conversations about why. And certainly there's lots of questions to be answered. I'm sure some of the questions, uh, you know, is, is, is available. Some of the answers to some of the questions are available at this point, but... I think most uh, fish harvesters and the general public is not entirely aware of what happened. I know that, um, you know, the stress call went out around 2.15 in the morning, but it wasn't until, or 2.30 in the morning, actually, and uh, it wasn't until after 6 o'clock before uh, a cormorant, the CH-149 out of the 103 rescue unit in Gander, uh, was on scene, and I must say... Um, the um, you know the heroism and the, the rescue that was executed by the search and rescue uh, crew is uh, it's just truly amazing. I, I'm I've always been amazed in my career. I've watched so many times you know the work of the the search and rescue pilots, the technicians when they arrive on scene, uh, putting themselves in dangers you know at the end of a wire, uh, stringing from a helicopter, the rescue people is incredible. And of course uh, this was no exception as they pulled them. Um, six people out of the water uh three of them unfortunately succumbed uh but uh you know when we we look at the the, the safety uh, issues and the preparedness for this it looks like the crew on this vessel was was prepared um you know they were in emergency suits uh, it seems they weren't in a life raft when they were rescued so they went over the side in emergency suits which it's quite acceptable. These emergency suits are great if they're properly maintained. It's uh, now become public that two of the the people that succumbed uh, did have uh, leakages, um, and uh, they were wet, so hypothermia set in very easily. Uh, but these suits are, uh, you know, they're they're a great uh, safety feature. There's no question about that. But uh, there's, I guess, some questions now about how the 406. Uh, the EPIRB 406 um, um, set off its signal. Um, you know, EPIRBs are great. It's wonderful. I, I, I just I just think it's the best thing that we could uh, have in a safety feature on board any vessel. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's limitations. Uh, if it's attached to a vessel, the vessel has to create pressure, or in other words, it has to, to sink, if you will, and the pressure that's created is hydrostatically released. And then it, uh, it automatically sends the, uh, the signal through the satellites, which is received at the recent control center in Trenton, Ontario, and then sent out to the, to the various uh, um, RCCs, MRCs. Um, so, you know, with the, the fish harvesters in the water uh, and without the, the vessel totally sinking and activating, there would have been a delay there. I'm not sure if that's where the delay came from. Again, that's answers that we need. We need that for a future point of reference, and we certainly have to look closely at the technologies and how we can interface the what we are calling the, 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 the PLDs, or the personal locator devices, because my understanding now is that these new generation PLDs interface with the 406. They operate on the same frequency, 
So you have them in hand, you have them attached to yourself, and if you're in an immersion suit or in a life raft, then it's easy to activate it. So, so again, that's, that's a, another piece of, of this puzzle. I guess the question has to be asked as well. Uh, we're talking to 103 in Gander that had to respond. It's quite a distance to, to proceed up, so proximity is an issue. We've been advocating, as you know, very strongly for um, a primary search and rescue units with uh, Comorant uh, and facilities and infrastructure in Goose Bay, uh, much, much closer, significantly closer. And in a, a situation where in search and rescue circles we talk about every minute counts, every second counts, that, uh, that's a significant thing to look at. Um, the Transport Safety Board, I read yesterday, had issued a statement that they're not entirely certain yet if there's going to be an investigation, they have to look at it before they proceed with their kind of investigation. There are six levels of investigations, and I'm thinking, what? You know, what is this all about, and why would these words even be uttered? Because if uh, time comes to pass, they decide not to, then you'll hear me screaming from one coast to the next. And so I don't know what that's all about. I can only assume that common sense will prevail there. I don't know why they wouldn't investigate in full. And I do know there's different levels of investigation. The police have mm -hmm. said they don't believe there's any criminal cause. Right. This is a big vessel. I mean, this is a 60-footer. You know, when 60 immediately footer, when you yeah. hear a, a crew of six, you know we're talking about a substantial mm -hmm. vessel here. So yeah. uh, no earthly idea what went on. But just to pick up on a couple of things you said, you know, an EPER, whether that be the perfect distress signal mechanism or not, I'm really surprised that they're not mandatory, to be honest. Yes. Because, you know, knowing where you are gives us a better chance to go get you and rescue you versus some sort of recovery uh, process uh, mm. is undertaken. So that and immersion suits, again, I can't understand why they wouldn't be well-maintained and well-understood and on every vessel because you can't last jig time in the North Atlantic without one. So mm -hmm. those two things, you know, and that won't keep vessels from coming into engine trouble and or rogue waves and or who knows what causes a vessel to take on water and potentially sink. So hopefully there'll be an investigation because, I mean, three people are dead. Mm. That's all you need to know. Yeah, and by goodness, absolutely, yeah. So a lot of these things that you just mentioned, Patty, are, are all, uh, you know, perfect, uh, beautiful uh, safety features, and uh, it's not a complicated process. Some of it is a little bit expensive, but in relative terms, it really means nothing when you're talking about safety. But uh, we have uh, the experiences of people that where things have gone right, where immersion suits are properly maintained and practices and all that has been exercised, has been executed, uh, that uh, there's, there's been, um, um, there's been um, rescues um, all over the North Atlantic. Um, you know, we had a crew out of a long liner, um, I think it was about 12 years ago now, that were in immersion suits uh, out on the Grand Banks. They went into their suits um, uh, late into the evening and got rescued the next morning at 8 o'clock. They came on board, and, uh, you know, a few, few minutes later, they were all sitting at the table drinking coffee. And, like, they, they were in emergency suits, and but everything was being, everything went well. But, uh, you know, 406s and all that. No, there, there's a lot of questions here. And, uh, you know, and I've heard this uh, many times, officially, from Transport Canada, that they don't necessarily conduct uh, investigations. But I'm not going to spend any time on that, because I have to think, in this case, with, with you know, with a, a relatively large uh, efficient vessel, 60 feet and so on, that this is a no-brainer, and this will happen, and we will get some of the answers. Um, you know, again, um, you know, CNL would issued a press release on this, and part of the executive of that, and speaks to some of the safety issues that's out there. You know, we've been very adamant that we have to look at, again, this issue of an inquiry, to look at all the, the various as aspects that's coming into play here. Transport Canada regulations 
as you just mentioned, you know, the safety at sea prevention issues that we can conduct, uh, the search and rescue, proximity, uh, infrastructure, response time, all these things, fisheries management, you know, the, the impact, Patty, of, 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 of making decisions that impact fish harvesters is significant. I talked to a lot of local people in the Florida area, in Coachman's Cove area, and in this case, uh, you know, the, the right up front, uh, the mayor of Valencia Blonde is talking about the change in EI uh, rules, which, you know, some would say, hey, there's a stretch here to go blaming this on EI rules. But, you know, after all fish harvesters this year add themselves positions uh, to avail themselves of their EI unemployment insurance as it relates to their role in the fishery, boom, here comes this new rule that says now you have to have an increase in the amount of value that you have on your fish. And many fish harvests were left, um, you know, without the right amount of fish. And it's been, it's, it's been said now right up front by the mayor and kind of official that, that the pressure that were on these fish harvesters to be out fishing this time of the year and doing the fishing in the weather they were doing was because they had to supplement and bring up that value. And the same thing has been said uh, in Florida Lee. So, again, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to dwell on that, uh, on that too much because someone say maybe it is a stretch, but the bottom line is that you just simply can't go making decisions without understanding the impact, not on just the social economic uh, well-being of people, but on the safety of people, and nothing has been illustrated any better than in this particular situation in Florida Lee and up in, in Palazzo Blanc. We'll, we'll follow along, and of course, sometimes given the breakneck pace of news and it's always changing and the headlines are changing and people just kind of lose sight of things, we won't lose sight of this one, and we'll try to make sure that we cover it as extensively as we can. My condolences to all involved. While we're talking here this morning, someone slips me a note saying that they know some of the people that were involved here and some pretty amazing inside baseball stories, which I, I will not share because this person didn't say that this for public uh, information, but... It's a terrible story, all too common. And like we said, when the lads were lost off Florida Lee, the community grieves. You know, mm-hmm. when we all have a direct or indirect relationship, whether it be professionally uh, with the ocean, it does have a widespread impact across the province. And this is no different story. So while the community and the province grieves the loss, more has to be done for safety at sea, as we're all painfully familiar with. Merv, I have to take another call, but I appreciate your time. Thank you for the time, Patty. We'll hear more. Take care. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Before we get to that break, let's go to line number four. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Very well. Thanks. How you doing? I'm all right. Um, I'm just calling really quick because today um, the Jacob Puddister Memorial Foundation will be selling tickets for a raffle to go see Taylor Swift in Toronto on opening night next year. Um, I'm just calling because these are to mark the anniversary of demonstrating for three years, which is in December, but we're not sure how quick these tickets are going to (laughs) go. Um, so I just want to let people know that if they want a chance to see Taylor Swift, tickets will be available for $20 and all the details will be on the Jacob Puddister Memorial Foundation Facebook page. Uh, probably later today, I'd say, by this afternoon. They will go very, very quickly. I mean, just look at the number of Canadians that signed up for a chance to buy Taylor Swift tickets for concerts in Toronto. It was unbelievable. I mean, her presence on in pop culture is enormous. Not not just for Swifties, those who are absolutely uh, uh, hardcore fans of Taylor Swift and her music, but it's now it's across the sports landscape and stuff. Now she's been seen or been hanging out with or whatever, one of the Kansas City Chief players. Everywhere you turn, Taylor Swift. Amazing. 
Oh, I know. I'm a huge Swifty myself. I know you are. I'm pretty excited about this. Um, I will say I have seen her in concert. I saw her in Boston. if you have a chance to go, you should. I really hope people buy tickets because it is an incredible show, but it's going to an even better cause that is very near and dear to my heart. Mine so too. I really hope that people, you know, not only go to buy tickets, but look into what the foundation does because the mental health support they offer the youth of this province is so important. And I, I think they deserve all the funding they can get. They've done a lot of important work. We've had them on the show a few times. I did an event with you to try to raise money for them, which I'd be happy to do again. So please do indeed buy a ticket. And I don't, I don't think you're going to have a hard time selling $20 tickets for a chance to go see Taylor Swift. I think that's going to be a blitz of a sellout. Uh, before I let you go, Christy, would you care to uh, pass any comment on the Spirit Horse program story? I am very upset about it. It it seems like it has done a lot of good for people. And I'm getting concerned about these organizations that are already in place that deserve more funding. And I don't understand why the government won't give them more. Um, People need all the mental health support they can get, especially in a time of, you know, wait lists, etc. And, you know, they offer unique services that aren't available other places, and they deserve the funding, and I hope the government uh, looks at this right away, to be honest. I appreciate the time, Kirsty. So once again, the information should be on the Jacob Patterson Memorial Foundation webpage sometime later today with the opportunity to buy one of those tickets for all you Swifties. Yes, and it is two tickets in section 212. They're great seats, um, as well as a $1,000 uh, voucher to travel, sorry, $1,000 travel voucher. So it will be well worth it if you win. Sounds great to me. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the Christine Stay in touch. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good one. And thank you for your help last year. I appreciate that more than you know. No problem at all. Happy to do it. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. So, it's what is the, the quote that I remember reading? It's never too late to do something. Who said that? Bill Coltis. What's he talking about? We'll find out right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Bill Coltis. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? How's everything going? Doing grand this morning. How about you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm delighted that you're taking my call. And uh, initially, it was a, a kind of a bit of a self-promotion about my my book that just got out called Revenge Finds a Home. But as it turns out, the more I do book signings and get out there, there's a story behind the story. And it's simply a fact that when I was uh, 71, I just decided to do a, a writing course at Memorial. And luckily, my uh, my professor or teacher was Lisa Moore. I got halfway through the course. and. Uh, and I wrote an assignment. She said, well, that's pretty good, you know. Why don't you send it off to Newfoundland Quarterly? They might publish it. And as it turned out, they did. And uh, and then not too long after that, my brother-in-law, who writes for Southscape's magazine out of Halifax, he said they were looking for fishery stories. So I sent them off a, uh, a story, and my God, they, they published that. So that was quite a surprise. And... Uh, as my wife would say, uh, my head was that swell-headed as a bear, I could barely fit through the door frame. Uh, so <clears throat> then I, I reconnected with Lisa Moore, and she challenged me to write a novel. And uh, I put my head down, and eight months later, I had a, uh, 
I had a first draft, and uh, it was all all pretty surprising, but obviously exciting. And it's always nice to have exciting things happen to you when you're, you know, in your mid seventies. So it's, uh, basically, that's the story. You're not new to storytelling, right? I mean, you've made uh, documentaries for television. You had written uh, some freelance pieces for a variety of magazines. But the discipline to write a novel is vastly different. I've dabbled with trying to write a few things, sometimes just to get some thoughts out of my head, never to the extent of trying to write an actual novel or a book. But talk about the discipline difference between, you know, documentaries, because you would have a lot of input from others working on the documentaries. And when you write a piece for a magazine, it's concise, generally just one topic and no real story arc required necessarily. So talk about the discipline of writing a novel. Well, it was an absolute total surprise to me. It's just one of those things. I uh, And sometimes it's like a, a, a parallel to my life. and sort of I feel like uh, a leap on a stream. But when I started writing the story, I had uh, you know a vague idea of what I was going to write about. But when I put my head down, the story carried me along. And, uh, you know, I'd start writing, and uh, and it'd just go on and on. I said, oh, my God, I must try this and try that. And uh, it just, that's the way it worked. Uh, I mean, I I, uh, I enjoyed writing it. Uh, the story took a hold of me. And uh, and so that was uh, that was basically how the process worked. And yes, you have to kind of discipline yourself. But uh, you know, this might sound um, counterproductive, but uh, in some respects, I'm not a totally disciplined person. Again, the process took a hold of me, and uh, and off I went. So that's how how that worked. And and of course, you know, I, like I said, I got a first draft after eight months. But it took two and a half years, believe it or not, to edit what. I had to get it, make it look good. I used to give uh, copies out to friends, and they'd sign. You know, they'd send back uh, criticisms. Then I hired um, a, a professional editor, Matthew Ledoux, and Matthew was uh, <clears throat> uh, very ruthless. Uh, he said, "No, no, that 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 don't work. Get get rid of that chapter. No, that's stupid. This doesn't make any sense." He kept on saying all this stuff, but at the same time, he said, "Now this is really, really good, and uh, just make sure you keep this in, but follow it up a little bit more." And that was where uh, my age uh, come in. Uh, you know, of course, I was in my seventies. If I was younger, I'd I'd probably get pissed off and and, uh, and and throw it away, throw away the criticism. Now I just sort of sat back and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I'll rewrite this and I'll rewrite that. And uh, it was quite uh, a process, and it caught me off guard because I thought, well, you know, you write a draft, you send it off to a publisher and hope they buy, it, you know, take it. And uh, it wasn't like that at all. It was the uh, the editing was was a really important part and my wife who uh, who has uh, published three books uh non-fiction books two on uh, raw cooking with her sister-in-law and another one which she did with bob wake and one bowman hamill uh, but these are non-fiction and uh, so uh, that uh, you know so i uh, when she went looked at the fiction stuff that i was writing she said well boy this is a different game but at the same time had a lot of good insights and and so, and that, that, like I was saying, there's like the story behind the story. Bill, did you know how the book ended when you started to write it? Uh, uh, sorry, what's that again? Sorry. Did, did you know how the book was going to end when you began writing it? No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> and that was that was uh, fun too, uh, because I, I I I thought I had an ending. 
but as I went along, it uh, changed, and uh, and it got more complicated. And of course, then when you go that route, uh, you uh, you're, you're you're stepping into a realm of uh, okay, you're going to make a mistake here, and uh, and uh, you know reveal the killer before the time comes, or you know because the, the, this uh, genre of murder mysteries is uh, is everywhere, as we all know, right from Agatha Christie to Jonas Bo out of, out of Norway and Henny Menkel out of Sweden. These uh, they set the bar pretty high. So that sort of started to uh, kind of come into my consciousness, and I didn't want to shake things up, you know. But the, the, the exciting part again is a lot of times I start writing and I say, "Oh my God, I think I'll I think I'll go off into this direction." And as I got towards the end, um, I changed things around, you know. It always, uh, but. Uh, but that again was the exciting part. So it's almost like, oh my God, now I know who the killer is. Uh, but uh, and I always joke about one of the things about uh, uh, writing is that you know who did it before you even started. But how I got to that conclusion was uh, totally, uh, you know, an unusual trail let's put it that way uh before we get the calls notes because we're going to wet people's whistle to see what the book is about or hear what the book is about what does lisa moore have to say about it uh, well, she enjoyed the book, and uh, uh, but she didn't say much more about that, and I'm, I'm kind of glad she she uh, she writes in a different genre. She's just an incredible writer. You can concentrate on one of her paragraphs in her in her books, and uh, and it's just you look at it and say this is fabulous writing. So uh, you know, Lisa was very encouraging. She liked it, and uh, and I won't say any more than that. You know. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I just read her book, Hard Ticket, which is a compilation of short stories from locals it was really interesting uh very quickly the calls notes what is revenge finds a home about well it's uh, basically two stories weaved in and out and this is an exciting part uh i deal with a young irish uh guy in uh, 1820 who came over on an english uh, fishing vessel on the grand banks he got mistreated so he decided to jump ship and uh, and he ended up getting injured and uh, going on shore and being taken in by the Beati. 180 years later, his descendant um, is an Irish detective coming over from uh, Dublin, and he gets hired on with the Royal Newfoundland uh, Constabulary, and um, he gets assigned to a case where a body on the East Coast Trail was found with an arrow through its neck. And I won't say any more than that. Other than that, there's a very direct connection between that murder and what happened to the Beothic 180 years before that. And Flanker picked it up, and you can buy it where you get your favorite books. Uh, Bill, congratulations. You're never too old to do something. I look forward to reading it. I'm looking right at the copy that you so generously sent me. Okay, thanks for having me, Patty. You're welcome, Bill. All the best. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bill Coltis, the author of Revenge Finds a Home. Let's take a break for the news. Today's a good day to get on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive executive director at Bridges to Hope. That's Jody Williams. Good morning, Jody. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How are you doing? 
good, my friends. So, you know, we follow along with the news coming from Food Banks Canada, and over the years we've ch- checked in on their report card. Yeah. Their most recent one is out. We're not, we're not getting very good grades. What do we find out? <laughs> uh, no, we're not getting very good grades. Uh, I mean, things are busier than ever. Uh, I'll give you, you know, for example, for us, for August, uh, compared to one year to the other. So like this August, we had 344 children we've seen, which was the most ever by far compared to about 208 the previous August. And we saw about a 36% increase in uh, individuals served. And again, the first time visitors, right, are the kind of number that seems to be uh, really, really keeps creeping up. Um, so we're seeing a lot more families, of course. That's the reason why we, uh, the kids' numbers up significantly is at the end of the day, families can't afford to make ends meet, right? Well, the report cards are, you know, it's basically A, B, C, D, or an F. Across the country, a big collection of Ds, yep. D pluses, a C out of Manitoba, mm-hmm. a B minus in Ontario. But let's talk about <laughs> some of the measurables here. So experience of poverty, we can understand what that means. But poverty measures or material deprivation, what does that mean? Um, I mean, I'm not sure. What would you say again? Material loss? They deprivation? Say, yeah, one of the, inside the report card, so there's three, or pardon me, there's four areas where they give you a grade. Legislative process, in this province we got an F. Experience mm-hmm. of poverty, we got a D plus. The poverty measures, D minus. Material deprivation, a D minus. I was just curious if you knew what that definition was. No, for- I definitely don't know what the material deprivation is. Um, but I'm definitely curious to find out. The other markers are kind of obvious, but yeah. uh, I mean, we are. I mean, this is going on. I mean, it's not local to here, of course. I mean, I'm sure uh, the numbers were bleak all across Canada. Um, you know, because again, at the same time, the um, again, it's just not enough income, and the cost of living is outrageous. So. That gap is only getting bigger, it seems. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much government intervention at this point. Um, you know, we're still waiting on this, uh, waiting months and months to kind of hear about this social economic well-being plan that was supposed to come out now since July from uh, our government. And in there, there's specifically uh, food action or plans related to food security. So I'm very interested and curious to see uh, at least what what's going to come out of that. What I'd be really curious, maybe we should invite Food Banks Canada on themselves, help us give a definition of some of those things like material deprivation. But I'd be really curious as to what they're doing in Quebec that gets them the best marks in the country, albeit only a B minus. Some of the keys mm-hmm. there is legislative process. I'd love to have Food Banks Canada on here because, you know, it doesn't matter which province people like or trust or respect, yep. but it's all about process and policy, how they're doing things differently, which gets them a better grade than we got now. The grades aren't the be-all and then the all. The reality on the ground the things you see are the things we need to understand but it'd be great to know what they're doing elsewhere do you have any idea what what changes or differences there are across the country with approach to food banks whether it be funding or access or whatever the case may be um, I mean, the thing is, and this is a part of the problem, you know, in, in itself, is this kind of like uh, lack of cohesiveness, I think, because, uh, I mean, it depends, right? Uh, philosophically, like, at what level of government is hunger a priority here? Right? Is it federal, provincial? Is it you protect your own in your city? Um, which, are, you know, obviously, all, all of them would have some play in there, certainly. Um, 
But um, the fact, you know, like, again, if something's working in Quebec, then that should be, you know, some should be able to extrapolate some kind of a learning from that that the rest of us can apply, right? And the problem too, Patty, honestly, is the wording. Uh, you know, I was at a conference recently, and I was on a panel, and I'm not always, always on these panels for food security, and there were some government people with me. And, you know, it was a bit of an awkward moment, of course, but it came to me and I was just like, you know, when are we going to when you stop saying stop saying words like food security and just get back to saying what it is, hungry people. The problem is that we get at a lot of these words are kind of, in my ways are a bit deflective. You know what I mean? They take the humanity kind of out of some of this stuff when you're saying words that people don't even understand. Then you're really getting further away from the problem, in my opinion. <laughs> that makes sense to you? It does. You know, what was once a one-off, a band-aid, a one-time, a one-off issue oh for regarding God. access exactly. to food banks? You know, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. It's absolutely a distinct failure in governance. You know, yep. when we know that there's going to be some private groups or not-for-profits or charities step in and try to do the work that maybe government should be doing, now all of a sudden, government thinks, well, food banks will take care of it. That's simply not good enough. If we have millions of Canadians in modern-day Canada reliant on a food bank, that is a huge problem. And government, not just in the form of funding, governments just have to do better. This can't be the way. We can't be relying on Jody Williams to feed the masses. No, and even like Mon, look at poor Mon Asad article yesterday, right? I mean, poor old Mon are over there, uh, their their food bank numbers. I mean, when I first started uh, into this, I mean, Mon, I mean, because I'm in communication with a lot of these different groups. I mean, geez, they might saw like 10 people. It was not normal for students to be using the food bank, right? And now they're up to 400 people and they can't even keep any food on the shelves. And that's just people that are using the Mon food bank. A lot of those students who live in my neighborhood here come here to get their food, right? So that's not even a real number, right? Um and you look at, you know, you're at a time in your life when you're supposed to be, um, you know, learning and stuff, right? And all these stuff just affects your mental health. I mean, how can you learn when you're in basic, you're nervous, you know, you're in survival mode, right? You're not eating. Well, I mean, we hear that stuff all the time. We talk about the importance of uh, kids eat smart and their breakfast program, the school lunch program. They talk about emotional control and the ability Mm -hmm. to learn. Well, same Mm -hmm. thing, if not even more so uh, in post-secondary. The Mount Food Bank says they've doubled. uh, The demand has doubled on that campus alone. Yeah, I know. It's it's there in dire straits. And again, adding in that to our other homelessness problem and our poverty problem uh, I know that, you know the problem is with all this stuff of course is like uh, it can seem all to the point where it's overwhelming and uh, throw your arms up in the air and give up right it's kind of like it almost seems like it's, I've never seen it this bad I don't think since I've been around anyway as far as the perfect storm of the, all these things kind of lining up together uh, and of course I don't have a, I don't have a solution certainly um, but you know again let's look at what's being done right in other places and try to emulate that we don't need to reinvent the wheel all the time either necessarily 100% and so Dave if you're able to hear I know you're on the phone let's see if we get Food Banks Canada on to help us break down definitions for some of those measures and give us an idea what they're doing better elsewhere to see if we can put it into our public policy yeah that would be That'd be great, actually, if you could do that. I do want to mention, though, while I'm on here, uh, because it is Thanksgiving, uh, we do have a couple of drive-in, drive-through food drives coming up this weekend from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Saturday. One is at First United Church in Mount Pearl, and the other one is at St. David's uh, parking lot over on Elizabeth Avenue, Rain or Shine. 
Again, you don't need to get out of your car necessarily even. And we could all use all the food support we can get at this point, so it would be much appreciated. I appreciate what you do, Jody, and your time this morning. Keep up the good work. All right, my friend. Have a good day. You too, buddy. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Jody Williams, the Executive Director at Bridges to Hope. I appreciate Marilyn, emailer, sent along this as a definition, a formal definition of material deprivation rate. And this a European Union uh, indicator. It means the inability to afford some items considered by most people to be desirable or even necessary to lead an adequate life. Imagine when we're talking about an adequate life. <laughs> Boy. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Lamarchant Road Shelter. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm coming around. It's been quite a trip since my son Ben passed away, but I'm doing the best I can to help people every day. It's a terrible story, and once again, our condolences to you. I see in my subject line you want to talk about the Lamarchan Road Shelter. What about it? I do. Um, my son Ben stayed at that shelter. And um, it's a difficult thing to talk about because of the things that happened to Penn in that shelter. But I think it's important for people to understand what's actually going on in those shelters. Um, in that shelter, you know, Ben was in a place where I would go to pick him up. And, and sometimes he had like 50 different in de- injection sites in his legs and um, infection and all kinds of issues. Um, It's a place where when he turned around, his stuff would be stolen. Um, He never received help, like, from a doctor, or he wasn't able to actually um, get help with a lot of the issues that he was going through because he was never, ever seen or diagnosed there. Um, It's a place where drugs is being sold every day you can just i would go to pick up ben and people just drive by on their bikes with their knapsacks you can see the drug deals happen right in front of you um this is common knowledge rapes happen there um with older men who uh like are preying on people who are vulnerable and have mental health issues. Um, This is reported to police, it's all documented. And so it's a horrific environment. People are there smoking drugs on the steps all the time. And um, I've, you know, called in about it many times to be able to get something done about it. But our taxpayers are paying $120 a night per person for people to stay in a drug den, essentially. I went in there myself when Ben's foot was swollen. There's drugs on the premises, bags are not checked, and people really don't understand what's happening there. So what is the solution? Like, we can complain about it all day long, and people justify it saying, well, at least people have a place to sleep at night. But that's the wrong attitude because we're not getting to the root cause of the issue. So what is the root cause? Well, if there's 25 people there a night and our taxes are going to pay for uh, people at $120 a night, which is what they pay, that shelter makes $90,000 a month. What can you do with $90,000 a month? When people come in, they can at least be diagnosed and tested for what's going on with them. Because why would you put someone, like in the case of Ben, who has an underlying mental illness, in a shelter where it's just, he was like the same as someone with dementia. You wouldn't put your sister, brother, father, 
in a drug den who had dementia. So why would you put someone with drug addiction in the same place? And, you know, we fail as a society to see the difference between addiction, people with addiction and mental illness, or people with just mental illness and treat it accordingly. Yeah, I mean, you need rules, supervision, and enforcement. The problem then very easily and quickly becomes we just see people shuffle from one shelter to another. So we don't necessarily get down to making it a safer, uh, healthier place for people to live because most shelters share the same concerns. And so if we're simply shuffling the deck chairs around, we're not really getting much further ahead. So I understand your concern. And, you know, let me set this up by saying... I'm not trying to challenge or argue with a grieving mother because my heart breaks for people like you and anyone else who out there who's either dealing with someone in the death spiral of addiction and or has succumbed to an overdose. So let me set it up by saying that. There is a move between you and some of your friends or people in the community who are talking about legislative approach to forcing people to get treatment. Have you changed your tune or your mind on that at all? That's called compassionate care, and I don't think people uh, understand that at all. In terms of forced treatment, nobody wants anybody to have forced treatment. But what people don't realize, again, is about mental illness. Mental illness, like 40% of people with bipolar and 80% of people with schizophrenia who go undiagnosed have anastignosia. And I think we talked about this before. Anastignosia is the inability to see that you're sick. Like, it's no coincidence that we have all of these people living on the streets refusing help. You have to look at what's going on. Why are they refusing help? Because they have a neurological, physical brain disorder that doesn't allow them to have cause and effect and to be able to see that they're sick, just like someone with dementia. But, Tina, even given that... You know, the whole the old adage, if you don't want help, help can't be given, because even if you call compassionate care or forced treatment or what have you, there's nothing out there that says that it even works. And then, you know, in addition to that, what happens if so many people lose faith in the system, don't trust the system, don't come clean to their family or their friends about their own addiction and and their own problems, thinking that I might be by legislation forced to get help. So there's a trust issue there. And There's nothing out there that says it even works. I don't think anybody should be forced to get help unless they are uh, on death's door and they're a danger to themselves and others. Like, I don't believe at all in forcing anyone to do anything they don't want to do. But as in the case of Ben, who had like 50 injection sites in his legs, he couldn't walk, he he didn't have any cause and effect, he was extreme danger to himself, he died. Clearly, someone needed to intervene and help him get the help he needed because he was not able to think for himself. And that's why we have so many deaths is because people once once people cross that threshold and they're a danger to themselves or others, which continues to happen with people who are left let out of court and doing break and enters and are a threat to the public safety. These are people who are extreme. Their brains are extremely hijacked. So that's the cutoff point. When that person is a danger to themselves and others, that they could die as a result of not being able to see their sick, that's when we, the human, the human, um, the ethical, moral thing to do is to help that person when they can't help themselves. And when is a person a danger to themselves and others? 
it's 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 very obvious in being able to see for example ben had 26 court dates that he couldn't even get to a court date he was unable to get himself um even the most basic things like his ids he was unable to get himself to a housing place because his brain was just completely shut down and he was deeply deeply addicted to fentanyl which is like two times 200 times more powerful than heroin so just imagine a person in that state deeply addicted at that level and not able to function, no cause and effect, no ability. If you think to diagnose anybody, but if you asked him if he was sick, he would say no. And so to me, force, that's, that's a humane thing. It's a human right to take care of our people with dementia, with brain illness at this level, that it, they're actually going to kill themselves as a result of not being able to self-reflect and anosognosia is real people that's a neurological dysfunction and here's the thing what you have to ask yourself is how many people that are homeless have never ever been tested and have an underlying mental illness personally i would make about 90 percent. i would have no idea and i i don't know if i offered an opinion or a number on that if it would be helpful to anyone including you know the public approach to these very difficult issues uh tina i appreciate the time i wish you well okay thanks you're welcome bye 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 um, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise. He's the opposition shadow critic for health and community services. That's Paul Ding. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Good, sir. How about you? I'm doing well. Doing well, actually. I'm uh, just taking a dart out to Trinity and back today. But uh, then I'll call in and have a chat about the, uh, well, the uh, uh, minister's trip now. They're planning to uh, Saskatchewan. What do you make of it? Well, you know, it's a bit a bit puzzling. There's no doubt about it. I, I think uh, when you uh, look at what's being done here in the province, I mean, the, the ministers after talking about uh, all the successes and that, and uh, talking about having the most lucrative uh, incentive program in, in the country, so it makes me wonder uh, when when this happens, uh, you know, what's not working, <laughs> you know. Uh, because if we're if we're in that position, then there's and we're fearful of uh, another province coming in here, and there's something we're not doing. And uh, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, you know job fears and the like, uh, you know those have been happening forever. And in fact, it was only last week the, the premier himself was up in the, in the Fort McMurray uh, hosting a job fair to to encourage expats back as well as others. So, you know, this is not unusual. And we had, uh, not too long ago, we had Nova Scotia in the province uh, recruiting. And and look at it, you know, graduates and students out there, I mean, they have access to the Internet. They they can do their shop around and find out uh, what jobs are available, when and where. Uh, But I think the onus is on on our province here to do everything that they can to ensure that, uh, especially our own graduates and those working in the province, uh, are treated the best and, 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 and have no have no reason to leave. So, you know, this here to, uh, I think uh, Brian Callahan called it yesterday, tit for tat. I mean, this approach doesn't give me any confidence in, in that there's, a, there's an actual plan of action. 
to me, a, a job fair like the Premier Entertained in Fort McMurray, you know, skills, trades, people and stuff, it, it's not to say that one group of uh, professionals are more important than the other, but healthcare professionals, given the healthcare issues or the healthcare crisis, seems like a different kentle of fish. And I'm not even sure what the government officials from Saskatchewan are dangling here. But I have been talking about this for a long time. Look, we're going to end up in nothing but a bidding war. And nothing's going to change. Healthcare is not going to approve. And not to begrudge anybody whatever money they can negotiate, but just paying people more does not solve the problem, especially if we're just shuffling a doctor from St. John's to live in Saskatoon or vice versa. The whole tit-for-tat and or retribution, I get when the minister says they cross the line, and I think this is patently unfair for other provinces to be doing this, and we shouldn't be doing it either. But I just don't see where this ends, other than, you know, uh, professionals are on the auction block. Who's willing to pay me more? And that's not great. No, no, I, I agree with you. You know, when when, when it's acknowledged that this is a, a national, international, global issue, then certainly, uh, you know, you're going to see this happening. You know, it's not something that should be surprising to anyone. You know, when you think of the province, uh, you know, went to, over to Ireland, you know, a country that's that's in just as much a healthcare crisis as we are. For sure. So, so I mean, you see this happening. I mean, at the end of the day. You know, what are we doing in our own province to ensure sure that those are here are not leaving? You know, and I just think of one thing, you know, just developing that rapport with, with graduates. Now. And, you know, we heard that the Premier and the Minister uh, quite a while back went out and met with uh, with uh, students, and, and some students felt they were being scolded. But, I mean, at the same time, why are we not doing that on a regular basis, going out and meeting with, with our graduates and, and encourage them and, and, and letting them know, you know, this is a place for you here. Uh, you know, there's different things that we could be doing that, that would make uh, individuals who are training healthcare professionals here or skilled trades, doesn't matter who, that there's a place a place here for them. And, and uh, you know, the, the uh, pasture is not always greener on the other side. Well, I mean, graduates is one thing, but I think that's the epitome of low-hanging fruit is when you are accepted into any of these schools as an RN, a radiation technologist, a respiratory therapist, a doctor, or whatever, from day one, there should be active, ongoing conversation between people in the department uh, and the, you know, the Newfoundland Labrador Health District or Authority, whatever we're calling it these days. That should not be just waiting until you graduate because you know what? By then, it's going to be too late. We're going to be behind some other province, and we see it. We know what's going on here. So that kind of communication should be absolutely critical, and the easiest part of this whole issue is to start that conversation. And paint the picture of where they where they could work, what the upside is, uh, different parts of the province, wh- whatever the conversation looks like. That's got to be where we start. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, it's, it's all all promotion, really. And and some of us may think, oh, you don't need to promote your own here, but but you do. Uh, you know, people and graduates and, and young professionals need to know what's available here and and what's what's being offered to them. Uh, you know, create that that uh, you know that need that they want to stay here for for reasons other than just the money. You know, yep. and 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 you know, uh, it's like the field of dreams, build it and they will come type type of approach. But you got to have that rapport with the students out there. They have to feel. Look, when I spoke to many healthcare professionals through the last couple of years, the biggest the word I heard most was lack of respect. You know, uh, from a lot of these groups, and I think we have to build on that. We have to we have to start respecting uh, what these young uh, professionals and that bring to the table. 
and, and treat them as such and, and t- let them know they're wanted. And, you know, so that when they go on the Internet or they go and see, uh, you know, a, a job share from Saskatchewan, they say, well, hang on now, that's not, you know, I got a better deal here. I, I, I want to stay here. I appreciate the time, Paul. Safe travels. Thanks, uh, You too. Take care. As Paul Din, PC member for Tops of Paradise, he's the opposition critic for health and community services. Just before we get to the break, this is also in the world of healthcare, and I've got three different people send me a virtually the same email this morning about access to a diabetes drug. Ozempic. I see it on television advertised all the time, but apparently there's a massive shortage of it out there. And also the fact that, you know, this one guy, this one gentleman names a specific pharmacy about the fact that they're charging the same for the 50 milligram uh, pen that they are for the one milligram pen. So I guess that means half a milligram, actually, if I'm reading this properly, half a milligram pen, they're charging the same price for that as they were for the full milligram pen. What's going on? Are you experiencing that as well? So there's people apparently calling around relentlessly to try to figure out where they can find this drug. It became a very in vogue uh, drug to take for uh, diabetes patients because it also has a uh, a food suppression uh, side effect, apparently. So it curbs your want to eat more and more, so consequently losing weight to manage your diabetes at the same time. So this is three people within the span of two hours this morning that have said they can't find it anywhere. That's a problem. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of show for you. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Bonnie Learning with the uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay uh, SPCA. Good morning, Bonnie. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. To say you and your staff are busy would be an understatement. I read that you took in about 500 animals in 2022, about 350 already this year. Paint us a picture of what that really means. So what that means is that, um, you know, with the high intake of animals, our costs are astronomical. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we're probably the busiest SPCA in the province, especially with regards to dogs and puppies. Our intake is extremely high, and as a result, our costs are extremely high. And I, I read the quote that says you're in constant fundraising mode when, of course, that's going to be part and parcel with operating an SPCA, but it can't be the overwhelming priority every single morning. So give us an idea what it costs to operate if we're talking about 500 animals in one year. What kind of costs are associated with that? So just to give you some idea, so in 2022, our total operating cost was $430,000. Seventy percent of that was payroll and vet bills alone. So because we are so busy, because our intake is so high, we need, um, you know, a full staff of four to five full-time animal caretakers to look after all these animals. Because we're at capacity at or most all the time. And when you have a lot of dogs and a lot of puppies in particular, it's very messy and it's a lot of work. And we need, you know, that amount of staff to keep on top of everything. Um, So, yeah, and the vet bills, of course, with that number of animals coming through, you know, we need to keep our animals healthy. They need to be vet checked. They need to be vaccinated, spayed, neutered, dewormed. Sometimes we have, you know, surgeries they need that we're not expected. So that's extra cost. So, you know, it's just, it just all adds up. And that's on, you know, that's just two of our biggest expenses and plus everything else on top of that. Our building insurance, uh, supplies, food, cat litter, shipping. Um, 
we we have a lot of shipping costs because we send the kennels to the North Coast, for example, to get animals to us that people want to send to us. So we have all these extra costs over and above what other SPCAs might experience. So, you know, our costs are high every month, and we just have to be constantly, constantly fundraising to try to keep on top of it all. And um, that's why we had to put out this urgent plea, just because it's, it's just so hard to keep up with on a volunteer basis, on a fundraising basis. Are you the only shelter in the area? We are the only chartered SPCA in Labrador. So you, you say you need a miracle. Uh, what does the miracle look like? Is it straight up simply about funding? Do you have any core funding that you can rely on every year, year over year? We The only bit of core funding, we'll say, it comes from the province, which every SPCA in the province gets, which is $10,000 a year. That amount hasn't changed in quite a number of years, probably since the early 2000s for sure. Um, that's the only bit of, you know, secure money we get every single year. Everything else is donations and fundraisers. We apply for grants um, when we come across them. Uh, sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. But that's not a that's not a secure source of revenue that we can count on every single year. And you mentioned the need to have three, four permanent staff on site to keep up with the volume of dogs coming in the door in particular. Do you need any specific training or you just need to be reliable and an animal lover? You need to be reliable, definitely an animal lover. I mean, you definitely can't be squeamish about anything when it comes to animals. Um, so, yeah, no, everything is on-the-job training. No no specific uh, education or anything required. So as long as you love animals and want to help animals, I mean, that's, that's what you need. So unless the miracle happens, what's the future look like for the SPCA and Happy Valley Goose Bay? Uh, sadly, it doesn't look very good. Um, as of right now, I will say that since we put out our plea last Sunday, that the support that com- that's coming in has been phenomenal. Um, we'll certainly, you know, make it through the next few months for sure. Um, if we don't get this secure funding from different entities that I've pointed out, to, you know, all this past week on social media and what have you, um, we there will come a point in time, whenever that time may be, that we would have to shut our doors because. We simply cannot sustain this size of an operation in terms of, you know, the operational cost uh, with fundraising and donations all the time. Um, you know, our board is getting tired. Our volunteers are getting tired. We've, you know, we've, we've done this for 24 years. I've been on the board myself 17 years. I've been at this. And, you know, push has got to come to shove sooner rather than later. And if, if we can get this some funding secured from different entities, that would be an ideal situation that we can get, you know, this a- annual donations, we'll say, every year uh, in a substantial amount. That will really, really help us out a lot and would really take a little bit of pressure off our, our volunteer board and our volunteers who help us out with different things. Bonnie, do you have any idea if there's one or two different reasons why there seems to be so many unwanted animals in your area? Because you say you're probably the busiest SPCA in the province. Any idea why it is the way it is in Labrador? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's no secret that there's a lot of, you know, uh, stray animals in, in different communities around Labrador. Um, so, I mean, that's where a large majority of them come from. And, you know, and if we're in a position to help, we will do that. I mean, some people may question why, you know, we spend money on, you know, all these vet bills for all these animals that come in uh, and, and whatnot. But, you know, if we got five cents left in our bank account and an animal needs help, you know, we will we will do it. We'll find a way to do it. Um so yeah, I mean, there's just there's a stray uh, population of animals around Labrador, and uh, so that's where the majority of our animals come from. Um, and you know, again, it is what it is, um, and we will help where we can. 
it's not necessarily in our control. So, but if they do come to us and people reach out, we'll take them. What do uh, what does a spay and neuter program look like in Labrador? Well, we did. We do have a program called Positive Helpers, which we started in 2017, and um, that started up with a grant that we got from the Cancel Foundation in Ontario. And luckily, over the last number of years, we were fortunate to get enough to get uh, two grants per year from that foundation of up to thirty thousand dollars, which helped kickstart this program we wanted to do for a long time in low-income spay and neuter. Um, so we've helped dozens of people, dozens of pet owners, uh, you know, with spay, neuters, vaccinations, and sometimes emergency surgeries, depending on the situation. So, you know, it was a very successful program. And um, unfortunately, right now, the funds just aren't there to help right now. But having said that, we weren't successful in the winter with our latest Cantel application, but uh, we did still help people when we could. We didn't want to, our bottom line is we don't want to see any animal in distress or suffering. So if we can help, we will. Bonnie, if people are now keen to want to help you and your branch of the SPCA, what do you want them to do? Well, like I say, the, the support is always needed. So like I said, the monetary support is fantastic. Any in-kind support from any businesses uh, for various things is, is appreciated. If any entities out there, and the entities I mean are, you know, governments, uh, provincial, federal, municipal, um, indigenous governments, uh, any businesses, business entities that may want to, um, you know, chat with us about possibly partnering with some financial, annual financial assistance. We're more than happy to talk to anybody and provide any information they may, they may need to, to look into doing that with us. Because without that support, um, you know, we may, we may not last much longer. We really don't know. Everything is very up in the air right now. We don't want to see our doors shut and we're going to fight to make sure our doors don't shut. But we need that help to make that happen. Bonnie, fingers crossed you get the help you need. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Take care, Bonnie. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bonnie Learning, the VP at the SPCA in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Okay, so we just mentioned the shortage and the cost of Ozempic, you know, a drug designed to treat type 2 diabetes. So apparently it is being prescribed simply as a weight loss tool. So this emailer says, you know, particularly in the United States, it's become quite a Hollywood type of thing to have a prescription for Ozempic. You know, they're calling it off-label use or uh, part of a practice of medicine. Uh, Maybe, just maybe, if you are someone who has a prescription pad, if your patient does not have type 2 diabetes and is looking for some sort of weight loss program, maybe we shouldn't be offering them a drug that is now in short supply for people who actually have type 2 diabetes. So that kind of stuff is a bit ridiculous, but apparently it's quite effective in weight loss, and that's all fine and dandy, but it's designed for one very specific purpose, to help treat and manage type 2 diabetes. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. The topic, entirely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, the, via email, this lady would like to know more information or will repeat the information about the old Taylor Swift tickets. So that was Christy that called earlier, and they have the opportunity to buy a ticket for $20 to support the Jacob Potterston Memorial Foundation, the chance to win two tickets to see Taylor Swift next year in Toronto. Good seats by the sound of it. So sometime today, hopefully early this afternoon, if you go to the Jacob Potterston Memorial Foundation webpage, you'll get all the info there about how to buy a ticket for a chance to see Taylor Swift. Okay. Had an, uh, you know, I read a story this morning and actually had a phone call on this exact issue some while back, maybe last week or the week before. It's a devastating story. On September 19th, 2021, a fella left Portobasque to drive across the Trans-Canada and fell asleep at the wheel, crashed his truck head onto a small car, killed the driver, 
and another occupant it took place just east of the Bayward Junction so obviously you know when we talk about the perils on the roadways people talk about speed and being under the influence or distracted and of course a big distraction is when you're too uh, sleepy to actually drive safely so apparently this guy admitted quite clearly that he was too sleepy to be behind the wheel. So there has been a, a ruling come from the provincial court, and it's basically said that the charge was only about the Highway Traffic Act. So this fella, Scandal is his last name, he pled guilty to driving causing death or bodily harm under the Highway Traffic Act. He was not speeding or impaired by drugs or alcohol. There were no criminal charges laid. So therein is the question. If you are understandably you know you understand yourself and apparently he's admitted that he was too tired to be driving that's willfully putting yourself and everyone else around you on the roadway in danger so no criminal charges laid so i don't know what the outcome would have been there but this is all about the highway traffic act and as a result of the punishment here now is also two people are dead remember a three thousand dollar fine which is also on the low range of the fine available here was up to a maximum of twenty thousand dollars and he's not allowed to drive. He's banned from uh, driving a vehicle for one year. So $3,000 and one-year ban, or two-year ban, pardon me, of driving. Add that up against two people dead? You know, is that the way these issues could or should be treated? Because it's a devastating story. We far too often hear these types of stories about loss of life on the highways and the byways, whether it be with these types of collisions and or moose or whatever. also saw a picture this morning of a vehicle at the aftermath of a moose vehicle collision. And apparently the blame has been put squarely on speeding. The problem here is that the speeding was done in darkness. So we always talk about what the speed uh, levels could or should be and people's adherence to the conditions and the time of day. But you know the deal. But that's a question that we'll put out there as to whether or not we need to change our approach to things like being admittedly too tired to safely operate a motor vehicle and what happens when and if the outcome is this. Two people are dead. So not surprisingly... You know, you bring up a topic of some of the things that happen in Ottawa, and of course, we try to focus right in on uh, provincial matters as much as we can, but of course, we talk about federal issues. Why wouldn't we? The one I brought up at the bottom of the show this morning, or the preamble this morning, was about the House of Commons and a couple of standing ovations for an actual, literal Nazi, okay? So there are some people saying that, you know, we don't know enough details to contain one person or another, but yes, we do. It's well documented that this person was actually serving in the SS forces in the Waffen, uh, the Waffen Division, and so he's a Nazi. Like, I don't know where the confusion is there. The problem, I suppose, is that people throw around Nazi and commie pretty carefree these days, which is very unhelpful when we're trying to have uh, important conversations about important matters. So the issue here, and, you know, the, the criticism that came across was, well, why don't we put, why didn't I put the entirety of the blame at the feet of the Prime Minister? I kind of put some, assign some blame here, but the fact of the matter is that protocol committee does not answer to the PMO. Every member of parliament, independents, NDP, liberals, Tories, they all have the ability to invite who they want to be their guests when they have a certain number of seats allotted to them. They're responsible for the vetting. Now, what I also went on to say clearly is that when we're playing high-stakes diplomacy here for all the world to see that, okay, Speaker Anthony Rhoda, he fell on his sword. It was his fault. He did not vet his guest list properly. And so as a result, a couple of standing ovations for a Nazi. 
So, yes, he had to resign. He did the right thing. He did the only thing available. What I went on to say about the prime minister and the prime minister's office's role here is when we know the world is watching, and they are, because when President Zelensky is in, whether speaking to Congress or the United Nations or in the Canadian Parliament, people are watching. Now, we can have conversations about the lack of uh, opportunities and conversation regarding a peaceful off-ramp for this conflict in Ukraine, this war in uh, Ukraine to come to an end. So the prime minister's office, even if it's not your sole technical responsibility, what they really need to do when we know that this is going to be carefully monitored by the international community is to reassure or to remind the various members that if you have someone coming to this particular sitting, that every uh, stone has to be overturned. You have to vet them in full so that we cannot suffer the obvious egg on our face, the embarrassment that the whole country has to deal with because of the lack of attention, the lack of focus, the lack of comprehensive vetting for a guest on this particular occasion. It should be every occasion, but some are different than others, right? When the world is watching what Zelensky says and where he says it, that includes Canada's parliament. So that's just a terrible story. That one's absolutely maddening and the epitome of a self-inflicted wound. Okay, so back to the Ozempic thing. Since I mentioned it, I kid you not, they are, the comments about Ozempic and the uh, difficulty in finding it are coming in fast and furious. I did have one emailer say they're having no issues finding the Ozempic, but apparently it's a problem. And, of course, when we go to the old Hippocratic Oath and the do no harm, it doesn't necessarily only mean do no harm to the patient right in front of you. It's do no, do no harm to the general public. Because if I have type 2 diabetes and I have a prescription for Ozempic but having a hard time finding it and then add in the associated cost of Ozempic, yet there's people with possibly a prescription only about uh, weight loss? No type 2 diabetes? I mean, that's a, st- a distinct and obvious problem that we've got to figure out more. So Dave is actively trying to get representatives from Food Banks Canada to come on the program to talk about their annual report card. Again, we got a D- minus here in this province. Not so out of line necessarily with the rest of the country. Out west, a collection of Ds, pluses and minuses. There's a C- minus in Manitoba. There is a B-, minus. that's the highest mark in the entire country. That happens to be the province of Quebec. So now what we're trying to figure out is exactly how they evaluate these particular grades. And there's four lines where they do do the evaluation, legislative process being a very key one. But if they're doing something different and it's working better for the people who are actually living in the province of Quebec, it should be something that we're able to understand and possibly mimic or replicate or adopt in this province because... D minus, and the numbers are growing, leaps and bounds. You hear the stories coming from the Jody Williams of the world where they're seeing more and more first-timers, more and more people who are actually working full-time and still unable to afford groceries to feed themselves or their family. That's what's happening at the food banks. You know, we've had Josh Mee on the program in the recent past talking about the most recent numbers for the cost of a nutritious food basket. Those evaluations are done on a family of four, a man, a woman, a teenage boy and a younger girl. I think that was the makeup of that four-person family where they come up with the cost. And then, of course, we had a call this morning from a gentleman to kick it off from Labrador about food costs in his region, which if you've ever seen pictures shared on social media about how expensive it is to buy anything under the sun, the necessities of life all the way to the so-called more treat options, 
It's absolutely off the charts. Two programs that were put in place specifically. Now, Layla Evans last week on this program talked about doing away with the coastal boat has really impacted the price of groceries in a negative fashion. Well, I guess in an upwards trend. But there was two programs that were supposed to be the so-called buffer to help protect the prices in Labrador. Nutrition North and the airlift subsidy. Neither of which seem to be doing anything. Neither of which seem to have any sort of uh, real appreciable control of pricing in Labrador. So whether or not you want to pick up on that as someone living in that part of the province or anything else under the sun, you can do it. If you're in and around town, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break for the news and we're coming back to speak with you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number one. Say good morning to the member for the NDP member for St. John Center. He's also the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure. I just want to make a pass comment on the, uh, I guess, what we're seeing now is sort of the tit-for-tat exchange of uh, dueling recruiting <laughs> recruiting teams and talk about your comments, I guess, your introduction to the show. Um, and I know you uh, talked before about this with regards to, uh, like, uh, we're going to get into this competition and how, uh, with provinces and uh, and and I, I I think from my in many ways it's it it comes down to a, a misplacing of resources. Um, I don't know. Uh, when I listened to the announcement yesterday. I understand the frustration, but are we now going to uh, if uh, another province sends? Uh, sends recruiting teams here. We're going to send one to there. If we got uh, from another country or from a, a, a state in the U.S., are we going to be sending recruiting teams down there? I think let's focus our energies on making sure that the conditions that uh, we need to retain nurses and healthcare professionals are the best possible that we have here. Focus our energies on that. I don't think our resources are, better, are best used in sending a, you know a, a, these chest-thumping exercises um, and, and sending a recruitment team up there another province sends one down we respond I think we're, we're getting we're getting uh, going down the wrong path here myself well it has a, a real feel of uh, two wrongs not making a right like I, I don't get it if we think that they've crossed the line then crossing the line back to get back at them is kind of unhelpful I get the frustration but what I'd also like to know is Exactly what kind of healthcare professionals are the team from Saskatchewan trying to lure? What are they offering? Because, again, this is going to end up in the very predictable bidding war that I've been talking about for months here. That's where we're headed. And, you know, yes, the feds will say it's provincial jurisdiction and all the same rhetoric we hear all the time. But what's good for the Confederation also requires some federal guidance here or some federal input as to what's going on. Because if it's only about the richest provinces getting to have all the healthcare professionals they want and the rest of us left, you know, watching their healthcare system improve while ours further deteriorates is a terrible outcome and that's where we're headed 
It is. Look, and in, in the end, I think I would have to start with, uh, first of all, if, if indeed, I guess, the minister or this government is secure in the belief that, look, we've got the best package that we, we've offered here, it's the best balance, it's actually re, uh, it's addressed a retention issue, then I think I would sit back and say, you know what, bring it on. Uh, we're confident in what we've offered our nurses here and what we've offered our health professionals. If it's not, and that's the conversation, I think, then, they, like, you know, my conversation, if I wasn't sure about that, I'd be having that conversation as a minister or as a premier with the uh, the the, uh, the the union uh, leadership of these uh, health professionals and find out what else is be do- to be done. So if you look at nurses, you still have um, you have a, a contract that was signed back in August. It's sort of like I guess to try to bring some stability to the uh, to the retention. But you still we the government is still spending a, uh, spending a tremendous amount of money in uh, in uh, travel uh, travel nurses, agency nurses, private agency nurses, which are also having an impact on some of the housing issues here as well then what do we need to make sure uh, and these travel nurses still have uh, more flexibility better and uh, better benefits than than those in the public system so how do you address that issue um, and how do you make sure that uh, you can attract more of those nurses back into it and also relieve the pressure that still exists within the system uh, so I think you know it, it would be uh, before we get into this tit for tat uh, to your point uh, maybe the federal government has to uh, step in as well but I think also it starts with making sure that uh, indeed uh, what we're offering uh, the health, our health professionals here is indeed what is needed for retention otherwise Patty we're going off uh, we're recruiting nurses uh, from India so what happens when they get here are we now recruiting uh, nurses for India if, if our if the retention is not a bonus and the measures aren't enough are we now recruiting nurses from other parts of the world only to have them be to be recruited by other the provinces. So I think before we get into this, I think what to me is uh, unnecessary um, uh, expense. Uh, let's focus on the on the um, on the basics here and make sure that we've got the uh, that we've actually uh, shown demonstrate nurses and other health professionals that we're committed to improving the work life balance uh, and so on and so forth. Fair enough. I I really struggle with trying to figure out, and I don't have all the answers to anything, let alone healthcare professional recruitment or retention. But the travel agency nurse became a bigger issue very, very quickly. And I'm not really sure what changed, if it was simply the work-life balance that nurses were struggling with, and or private sector comes to town dangling big money. If I'm told I have more flexibility, uh, more choice, and all the same more money, sure, of course I'm taking that job. doesn't make a registered nurse a bad person to do better for themselves and their family, but any of these tools, I don't know how you put that toothpaste back in the tube. You, and, and you know what? And maybe it comes down to building another tube, but no, that's a fair point. Look, there are there are many factors here. Hmm, let me put it. How do, what is it? Apart from the pay, I guess that the uh, that the travel uh, that travel nurses would have. From what I gather, talking to uh, to, to nurses in the public, it's about having the flexibility of. Uh, let's say that I do have a, a lot more con- that they do have a lot more control over uh, uh, over their work life balance. Well, maybe it comes down to I, I would assume at one time mandated twenty four uh, mandated overtime, 
was a response to a, um, a, a maybe a temporary temporary problem, but it became the default position, and 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 uh, the health authorities began to rely on it. I can see it in education. Analogies in education where things that started, uh, in response to certain deficits become become uh, the the default and the permanent uh, institution. So I think in some ways, government started with that with a with a uh, with a with a contract that was an attempt to uh, um, uh, to to rectify the problem. But I think they've got to go forward. I can tell you from negotiations point of view, rarely did anyone ever get a benefit without having something else clawed back. Uh, and in the end, um, in and in the end, I guess what we have is uh, this this if it's a budget-based decision making. And I understand the role of budget, and we all have to have be fiscally responsible. But if in the end, over the years, we've seen a cutback in services, cutback in benefits, it doesn't take long before people realize, well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to choose another option. But I think work-life balance. I think the money is a part of it. But after a while, I think uh, as long as you've been in any career, it comes down to. No, I need to have. I got a family at home. I want to be able to attend my uh, my daughter's birthday or my son's graduation, and uh, or have a, uh, those. I think those are the other things that, that we need to focus on as well. Otherwise, if we're not com- if, if if I were if I were government and I, if I were confident that we've done everything we could, then bring on the challenge. Unless I'm not going to waste my energies on, on on these kinds of things. But if not, then what else do I need to start doing to uh, uh, if not get the toothpaste back into the tube? Uh, uh, you know, build a new, uh, build, build another toothpaste tube. Very quickly, before I run out of time, uh, so you're in the news talking about an access to information request that's come up with a number of uh, money spent on emergency shelters. I mean, it's really amazing. I saw two stories right alongside each other. One is about the fact that we're spending $10.5 million on emergency shelters in 2022, and then the province opening a new emergency shelter, 40-bed emergency, 30-person warming shelter for the coming winter months. So how do you read that number? Because we're always going to need emergency shelters. They're not going away. Maybe we're not on the right track with how much money and how expensive it is, whether it be publicly owned and operated, the private sector, hotel rooms. How do you read that $10.5 million? Well, you know what? That ties so neatly into what we were just talking about yep. because I think in many ways, uh, like we, uh, so the private shelter or the emergency shelter was in response to a specific need, okay? To, we, like to me, you've got to, get, you, you, you've got to find a way to keep people off the streets. But that's... That uh, that's growing because we have they haven't addressed the underlying problem of uh, of housing and uh, at the uh, at the town hall last night it, it came up several times. Look, it's been 30 years. Go- uh, and government has fa- has gotten out of divested itself of uh, get of housing issues of affordable housing, and the problem builds up. Now we're stuck in this cycle where we got more uh, we're finding more people being uh, um, homeless as a result of increasing prices. And how do we uh, solve it. Well, we're, we're building shelters, uh, and we're building more of them. And I agree, Patty, there's probably always going to be a need for shelters, but the, when they start to proliferate, and when that's, that becomes a total response, then to me, that's an emergency situation. We've got to, we've got to, uh, we've got to get at the root cause. Uh, this is a, these, these are the life preservers we're throwing people to make sure that they stay safe and they don't die. Uh, but if all we're doing is throwing life, uh, build, making more life preservers and throwing them, <laughs> then we still have 
haven't addressed the issue. And I think, to, to your point, uh, I, I, we're going down this way. Uh, to on one hand, I understand the need for the people, let's say there are people in my district who are now living in tents and they're, 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 they're expecting to live in tents over the uh, winter. But to, uh, on one hand, I, I say, yes, we need to do that. But on the other hand, guys, if, if the answer to this is we're building more shelters, we're missing the boat here on the need for, uh, as I said, more non-market affordable housing uh, as one option uh, to deal with the, the the affordability crisis. But I think you hit the capture the, the the problem that we're in right now. It's uh, you you got people falling overboard, uh, got to rescue them, and we're being distract, distracted now from what the real re, real answers are. I appreciate the time, Jim. Thanks for the call. Thank you very much. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Jim Dean, NDP member for St. John's Centre, leader of the party. Just one additional tidbit to add to the Ozempic concern or pile. And, of course, if you're living on the mainland, the opportunity for Americans to come across the border and or for the prescriptions to be put in the mail is a, you know, of course, I will deal with the issue regarding supply. Maybe not necessarily the primary issue here in this province, given the fact they're not coming across on the ferry to get an Ozempic prescription. But here we go. The Nova Scotia College of Physicians and, Sur- and Surgeons has suspended the license of a doctor living in the U.S. who is believed to have written thousands of prescriptions of, for Ozempic, a diabetes drug that some patients are seeking to help with weight loss. The regulator doesn't believe that Dr. David Davison has practiced in Nova Scotia for years, but he allegedly wrote 7,500 prescriptions for semaglutide. Lutide, the generic name for the drug. In February 2023, 5,800 in January 2023, and 3,860 in December 2022. The college said it believes most of the prescriptions were, were provided to Americans who filled them in British Columbia. Based on volume alone, the prescribing is not in keeping with the standards of the profession. So says Dr. Gus Grant. He's the registrar and CEO of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Nova Scotia, adding to the issue that people are finding regarding the drug that is Ozempic. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? I just want to address the comments vis-a-vis the uh, inferences with respect, not inferences, I'm sorry, but the statements with respect to uh, shelter housing versus affordable housing. Okay. And... Uh, it seems that Mr. is his last name Dean Din Jim Din. Yeah, he's the leader of the NDP, the member for St. John's Center. That's right. Oh, he's a uh, member of the NDP of St. John's Center. Yep. I'm calling from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Okay. Uh, this is a point that I've been following uh, for a considerable number of years, being involved in the construction and real estate business. Uh, I'm 82 years old. I'm sorry, I'm 81 and a half. Okay. <laughs> and uh, when I hear these discussions uh, about the concern about the shelter, and then he uses uh, there should be some concentration on affordable housing. Uh, all due respect to the Honorable Jim, uh, the the whole definition of affordable housing, both by the federal representation in Ottawa and throughout this country has never, there has not been a politician that I know of that have been able in the last five years to describe and give us a picture as to what an affordable housing looks like. Based on the on the publications that I see with the 
with the political advertisements of affordable housing, it shows houses that are built not at the stage of 1,200 square feet. In most cases, in my life, affordable housing was 1,000 square feet. But these houses are built and showing pictures of the construction industry building these at what they but the politicians are saying we have to build more affordable housing but all the pictures they're showing every house that they're showing is probably running $250 a square foot simply because there's a projection on the roof or there's a uh, architectural design done that costs a lot of money the only thing that we need for affordable housing is a, anywhere from a thousand nine hundred and fifty to a fourteen hundred square foot unit. That but that comes some, with a lot of moving targets too, doesn't it, David? Because you know it's. I don't right now, can I interrupt you? I, I also have problems with reporters that ramble a bit, and I did. I'm not saying you're rambling, but I said five words. A lot, that, pardon me. I said five words. Go ahead. Well, uh, am I allowed to interrupt you? Go ahead, David. The uh, the concept of an affordable housing back in the uh, in the era that uh, people could get the Canada Mortgage and Housing Loans, they had what they called a shell house, which means that those that would qualify for it would have to go in and donate or provide their sweat equity, but the house was built for hability in the municipalities across this country. And then they had to do what they had to do to to keep to improving it. No different than anybody else had done in my lifetime. So what is this story? There's no politicians that I know of or documents that I've read that actually describes or shows the architectural drawing as to what all these builders are supposed to be building for affordable housing. It's, it seems to me that the, that the construction industry, including, including the suppliers of the lumber to build these things, are not participating with respect to a building affordable housing. Uh, what they're building is multiple housing units, uh, individual single-family units that uh, somebody that can't afford it could get on a piece of land that doesn't cost them a uh, another $40,000 on their mortgage uh, arrangement with the Royal Bank or whatever. Uh, and they're not, they're not defining... And neither, neither are the reporters asking the questions of the people that are building these things. What is and what does an affordable housing look like? Is it a single family unit or is it a unit of a square box with another 12 story building? Well, I, I guess, David, because they're all different things, aren't they? And you know, what's affordable in St. John's is very different than what it looks like in Vancouver or Montreal or Calgary. And inside the affordability issue here, you I'm know, talking about a federal. I'm talking about a federal issue here now. Yeah. Okay. What does that mean? The federal. The federal government should be funding Newfoundland and Labrador 
uh, as well as any other province, with some kind of definition as to what the architectural design of affordable housing is all about. It seems that everything that I'm privy to, certainly in the public eye, every time that story comes up, it's always a 10 or 15 or 5 or 12 floor building. Where is the affordable housing, the individual house that that individual wants to live in? And what is the definition of that? As as a as someone who's doing investigative re- reporting, with CUN does significantly amount of that. Find out what is it that the funding is is going to be the best place to use it. If if you use it in in towers, those are multinational companies involved in this stuff. And the only way it's going to be affordable is if the if the suppliers of the lumber that's required and all the other trades that are required are on side with it too. Let's build a house that somebody can sit on a piece of land and and improve it over the 30 years they're going to live into it and be proud of it and then sell it for a profit. So I mean, what I, my, my only my only my only statement or point is all all of this nobody is defining what affordable housing is. When when I grew up in my lifetime, I knew what an affordable house was. The federal government defined it and they provided funding for it. They, they, they gave people 30 years. Uh, it regards the interest rate. That's a mobile number anyway. But the contractors had to build according to that particular strategy. I think you're on to something important there, David, because no longer, you know, over the course of the last 30 years, the federal government went from housing as a place to rest your head to housing as a major contributor to GDP. It's a completely different thing. Now it's, of course, all about equity because the most expensive thing I'll ever buy, the most equity I'll ever have is in my home. So we went from housing as a place to live versus housing is now an investment, which has really changed the tune in government policy. exactly my point. And I understand. I I appreciate exactly you publicly making that kind of point. But the fact of the matter is, everybody that needs affordable housing, that's their biggest investment in their life. And if they can get into a house, I don't know what this is. I mean, I can make all kinds of guesses about what what it is. I I, I know some generalities. By today's standards, uh, contractors are quoting $250,000 a square foot. Is that to build a 1,000-square-foot house? Does the people understand how much space is in a 1,000 square feet on your own piece of land? That's a major asset. They'll go in there and they'll work that up and in 20 years. uh, They'll buy it under the federal government's program, but fortunately enough, they'll be able to... It's like money in the bank instead of going to the bank. It's in their house. It's pride of home ownership is what's been lost here. It's certainly part of the equation. There's no doubt. There is a federal housing... Wait, now, can I interrupt you again? (laughs) I suppose, David. Last thought before I go to the news. Go ahead, sir. Right. I understand you're under pressure, too. Uh, It's only part of the equation. But the part of the equation, it's the single most investment that somebody that can't afford a house, they've got to get the 10% for the bank. And right now, that 10% has multiplied up to $100,000 deposit in some cases. These people don't have the cash in the bank. 
That's all I'm saying. Yeah, the, but they got sweat equity. They, sure. they're, they're, they're trades people. They they know how to build houses. But once they get inside their own house, they'll build that house, and that house will become will become a two or three thousand dollar home or a five thousand dollar home. Okay, the part of that issue there is even the ability to get a mortgage. I mean, the mortgage stress test, you know, residential constru- uh, construction organizations right across the country point to that as one of the real complicating factors. Affordable well, market of housing. Of okay. course they do. And I, and I agree with you. But the same token, the bank uh, was prepared to loan the money. I mean, they, they can pay the interest over 30 years. It amounts to X percentage points over 30 years, but they got the pride of building a house that they got relatively inexpensive. And the land, the cost of land is gone out of sight. I know the servicing of land is gone out of sight. I mean, land should not be bought for a million dollars to put uh, affordable house on. No, but even. the issue but there, I have to get to the news, though, David, but the issue with land being expensive is they're not making any more of it, right? That's where it becomes a massive investment. People sitting on uh, parcels of land, they are in a good spot, financially speaking. Well, I guess it all depends where the land is as well. Uh, David, I'm late for the news, but I appreciate the input this morning. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Take care. I think. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Just to pick up on a couple of the points that the last caller, David, was making. So affordability, you know, when we talk about affordable housing, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's simply not, right? Now, there are some understandings about what affordable housing means with that pocket of 750 homes that were announced, uh, say, six months ago about cost and the associated architectural design, the engineering of the homes. But affordability on a national scale is a pretty difficult conversation to have because, you know, again, affordability in Toronto is different than uh, Vancouver, is different than St. John's, different than Halifax, different than Charlottetown. So it becomes a tricky piece of business. In addition to that, there's a couple of big questions out there about these new housing accelerator funds that have been put forward and the government policy about taking away 5% of the GST for developers to build more so-called affordable homes. The problem there is that it's only for four-unit buildings. It does not include two-apartment homes or to uh, renovate your basement to become an apartment. So there's a lot of the go-to normal type of rental setups and affordable housing issues that don't really get attached to that particular plan. In addition to that, we pay 15% sales tax here in the province. Five for the feds, and then, of course, the provincial sales tax portion. Is the province going to do anything on that front? In reality... The issue regarding non-market housing versus market housing, for developers, and this is not a bad thing, they're in it, it's a business. They're in it to make money. So whether it be more attractive to build condos and or to build houses on spec and or to build for outside the affordable envelope, like a $450,000 house, we're going to have a hard time satisfying market housing in the world of affordability. You know, the cost just to build it, whether it be the cost for uh, labor, the input cost for whether it be roofing, shingles, the plumbing, to wiring, to lumber, to everything involved in building a home, it's going to be hard to build a unit. Let's just pick out a fairly modest, middle-class, 1,100, 1,200-square-foot bungalow. It's going to be hard to build that, 
and still make it affordable in the so-called still for-profit private sector affordable issue. Look, again, they're in it to make money. That's what they do. That's their business. That's not a bad thing. That's actually what they do. So it's going to be hard to satisfy that particular need. Will the province step up and take off 10% of the provincial sales tax to you know, further bolster that federal announcement of removing 5% of the GST? Let's see. Also, the price people are being forced to pay for rent versus get into their own home because there has been a change in tune in the entire country versus housing as a place to live versus housing as a piece of equity and a seriously large component of the, pro- the national GDP. People are paying rent that they could absolutely be paying a lesser mortgage and get into something that has a piece of equity attached to it. The problem there is the mortgage stress test. Now, yes, there's got to be some parameters and uh, eligibility requirements you need to meet to qualify for a mortgage, but the current stress test that's in place seems overly harsh overly demanding so people have a couple of things there's a way now to for first-time home buyers through federal programs to get uh help with having a down payment available because you do need a big a significant deposit or a down payment on your mortgage and yes you know we saw the bank of canada with 10 consecutive raises of their benchmark interest rate now standing at five which has a complication with people holding a variable mortgage so fine to make sure that people don't uh, fall in in arrears with their mortgage, but that stress test seems to be overly cumbersome and difficult for so many. Just imagine how many folks would be out of the rental market, you know, because the churn has kind of stalled here. Housing starts are not strong. People who were once renting moving into home ownership has stumbled. Those numbers are falling back. So consequently, the churn has impacted vacancy, and vacancy has an impact on how much people are paying or asking for or demanding for rent. So I think a bunch of those things in combination, I mean, starting with the stress test, you know, with more and more people renting because they can't pass the stress test to get into their own mortgage, of course, that just up, uh, that upsets the natural cycle of people who are moving from renting to owning. There's nothing wrong with renting. Some people will go their entire life and do nothing but rent, a, a rent an apartment or rent a home. So be it. Because some home ownership is not quite as glamorous as it sounds from the outside looking in. There's a lot of upkeep costs. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to keep your home in proper order and, you know, to have the curb appeal in place and all the rest of it. So it's absolutely a bit more complicated than just, you know, saying we got to build affordable units. It's the non-market housing that's going to uh, rule the roost here if we're really going to be serious about it. And, you know, just look at the report that we had from the Canadian Home uh, Home Mortgage uh, Corporation. So they say that over the next six years, we're going to need to build 60,000 units, 10,000 units per year. If you listen to the uh, representative for the umbrella, umbrella group for home builders, a banner year for us is about building 2,500. So the gap between 2,500 affordable units and 10,000 is the Grand Canyon. So how that circle gets squared and we actually get down to the brass tacks, hit those targets, that's going to mean a lot of non-market housing. Now, of course, you'll say, look, the bank has run dry. Sovereign debt, provincial debt is out of control. You're not wrong. But what are the associated costs with the affordability and the housing crisis that the country's facing? Right? How do we do the cocktail napkin math about what it's going to cost to get homes over people in, get people in homes and roof over their head versus 
trying to depend on the private sector and the free market to dictate who's going to be able to afford a home. I think there's a wide gap there, but the the housing issue is certainly a conversation that we can peruse further. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, Ron's in the queue to talk about HST. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Thank you, Patty. Uh, I want to make a couple of comments on what you were just talking about, about the HST reduction for contractors and things like that, if I could. Um, the, uh, I know the federal government, I'm not right up to speed with all the programs they're looking at introducing here and everything, but the federal government has a program, provincial government is looking at doing something. Uh, I, I don't know how it's all going to roll out, but uh, and, and whether it's, you know, uh, a four-unit place or whatever, and, you know, the, the affordability and sustainability of everything. So just say, for put a scenario out there. Okay, I'm a contractor. No, I'm not. I'm not a contractor, but if I was. And I built, like, a four-unit or a multi-unit, whatever is going to be. Is the federal government or the provincial government uh, going to have any restriction? If, if I take advantage of the, the, the credit offers, will they put a restriction on the contractor or the owner of the building that availed of the, of the, of the credits to... Um, regulate the rent of the people going in at this moment no so I mean I guess part of this conversation will also be whether or not people think uh, it's a good idea or a bad idea to also include not only taking off HST for construction affordable units but what rent control looks like what vacancy control looks like and how that actually jives with the developers want to develop in places where they put rent and vacancy control in place there has been a slowdown in housing starts because if they're not going to be able to make as much money building these units they're of course going to build what they can make money at and in most of the time it's con- it's condos certainly in the, uh, the vast majority of the country that's where they're making the most money so it's a good question that you're asking i do not recall seeing that as part of the announcement from the federal government but it certainly should be part of the conversation how that looks and will it work yeah and and you said you haven't heard it from the federal government but we haven't heard it from the provincial government either well the, the fact is until the province does something with their 10 percent unless they just simply enter the conversation regarding rent control period then on this one particular issue from the feds on the five percent gst unless the province gets on board with their 10 percent, then i don't know what they can do about it anyway yeah, because if, if, if a contractor is going to, say, spend, I don't know, say $5 million to build a place, and then I'm looking for a place, and i got to pay, like, $2,500 a month to live there, it's like the Super 8 Motel now, that's uh, being renovated or going to be start renovated for, like, like a condo, I guess it's going to be. like, and, uh, You know, because I know just recently one of the things that sort of prompted my call, not only just listening, but this has been in the back of my mind for a while. Every time I hear this conversation, I said, yeah, okay, we'll give the people with money that's building this the breaks and the taxes, but what about the people that are going in there? It's been in the back of my mind, but my sister recently, through no fault of her own, uh, had to leave an apartment she was in for 12 years. And now she had to go out and look at it. Same story you hear all the time, right? And now she's got to pay 30% more in rent in the new apartment she's going into. Now, this the land... land person that she had gave her a valid reason for evicting her from the apartment. Now, there was no, like, say, drugs and alcohol, pardon on that stuff. It just, like, whatever was a legitimate reason. But in the back of your mind, they wanted, oh, boy, is, she, is she just being evicted so they can jack the rent up? Because I don't even know if there's any rent control here. There isn't. 
in Newfoundland. Is there any, any other provinces? Is there rent control? Yeah, PEI, for instance, is at 2.5% annually and the rent control issue. But what also has to be included, if this is a, if this is a conversation worth pursuing, and I don't really know, but there's also the concept of vacancy uh, control. So it's one thing to have rent control in place, but let's say, for instance, a renter leaves and or gets evicted or whatever the case may be, yeah. unless you also have vacancy controls in place, then that gives the landlord the opportunity to jack up the rent however they see fit. Now, Yeah, that's what, what I was wondering too, because like if in PEI you said it's 2%, I think you just said, so so if I move out or get evicted in PEI, uh, the landlord can only put the rent up 2% between tenants, is it? No, the va- rent control is for only for the current tenant. So if I'm charging you $1,000 this year, uh, I can charge you 2.5% more next year. The issue is if the rental becomes vacant, it's then what they call vacancy control. So unless that is part and parcel with rent control, then it's only going to help people who are currently renting, not not people entering the rental market. Oh, I didn't understand what vacancy control was. Okay, now I think you explained it. So, yeah, okay, there's a difference in rent control and vacancy control. Okay. Yeah, there is. Okay. And uh, and another thing, last week, when you were off earlier there, uh, Linda fielded a couple of good questions there from the lady as well, if I, if I can just add that on there, is... Uh, she, she was talking about these cabin lotteries now like you know, I got a bunch of tickets there on the cabin lottery up uh, I don't even know what the cabin is at I just bought them to support whoever's selling them like kind of thing right but the lady called and said why don't instead of having one great big place worth a million bucks why can't the lottery places in Newfoundland Labrador or across Canada for that matter I guess uh, have lotteries where they got like probably two or three or four houses that are more you know, like the regular little houses instead of one big giant place that if you win it, you can't even afford to heat it and <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I suppose the issue there is the attractiveness of the prize, right? I mean, it's the concept of the dream home. Do I dream to win that cabin out of Dildo Pond valued at $850,000 or would I still buy a ticket if it was a $150,000 cabin out in Deer Park? I don't know. Probably not. I guess that's why yeah. they do it. Depends what the dream is. Some people are dreaming for a tent that doesn't leak. You know, it's... Fair ball. Yeah, so it was, yeah. And if I could just throw in one last thing, if you got time, Patty. Quick one, go ahead. Okay. Uh, as well, uh, earlier in the week, there, there was a lady called in, I can't remember her name or which way to address the lady, but she was um, from Labrador, and she spoke of her experiences as a young child in Labrador, grown up as an indigenous person, and about the... the um, the signs teaching our grandchildren to read the signs that are in English, uh, French, and two other languages like that are indigenous languages. I won't try to say the name because I'm not too good at the, saying the names there. But, okay. um, uh, and my God, was she ever, she expl- apologized so many times about her English and everything, and but she spoke very good English. She explained everything. She was almost, it was almost like listening to Mother Nature talking. Yeah, it was Elizabeth Panashaway. She's quite passionate. And my God, it was such, you know, it's just if the people that make some of these decisions could listen to people like that, man, I tell you, it'd be a much better place. I I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot, Ron. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, final word this morning goes to line number one. And Michael, Michael, you're on the air. Hello there. Hello. Greetings from Sin City, Las Vegas. I'm 4,000 plus miles away from home. Come all the way to see your interesting little unique part of the world here. And I love listening to local radio and finding out what's going on, what people are talking about. Uh, 
Everybody thinks taxes are too high, prices are too high in Canada. They're getting tired of your prime minister, even if they voted for him. And I'm like, this is very interesting to me as an American conservative Republican guy. And housing costs is one of my big issues there. We have much the same conversations you're having here, what I've heard on, on this and uh, the CBC station last night from Toronto talking about it. So, so my heart's with you there. I know what you mean. I don't know what to do about it. I don't have any solutions either. You know, rent control sounds like it might be a good idea in some places. And who knows? I'm just, uh, but, you know, having a good time exploring your beautiful province here. I spent a lot of money getting here, and it's going to cost me some just to get back on that bus to the other end of the island to catch the ferry. But uh, having a good time so far and um, having a little trouble with your interesting accent here. I don't know quite how to describe it, <laughs> but it's, it's fun to try and learn. Well, I mean, accents are a curious thing, right? I guess many people from this province say you make yeah. your way down to the southern United States might have the same concern regarding accents and the ability oh, yeah, to understand. Yeah. But, yeah, we're really quite proud of our unique accents uh, to be here, to be honest. And there's different accents right across the entirety of the province. You know, the way people speak up the southern shore is different than the way they speak on the Bureau of Peninsula, which I think is beautiful. Uh, welcome to the province, though, Michael. What made you come here? Well, they speak in Halifax in New Brunswick. And sure. what's that now? What exactly yeah. did you come for? Like, what was the enticement to travel to this province? Just to travel to the end of North America and say I've been there, a place that few people have been. I'll get bragging rights on that. Say, hey, have you ever been to Newfoundland? Do you even know where it is? Well, let me tell you. That kind of thing when I get back home and stuff like that. And if anybody knows of any kind of a homestay program, I'm staying at the campground out here, Pippi Point, because it's cheap. And I brought a good tent with me that doesn't leak and (laughs) a little windy. But I've asked the local tourism bureau. They're kind of like, well, maybe there's something. We don't know. We'll kind of get back to you. Maybe like that. Try Facebook. I think I would just love to spend a, spend a night at some uh, local Canadian's house and, and learn about the culture more that way. If, uh, if your producer wanted to take my number or something like that and somebody knows something about that, get back to me. Sure. Because um, that's truly adventure. I, I lived in a – I rented a room in Mexico for a month last year because I'd never done that before. And I improved my Spanish skills greatly. So uh, <laughs> I'd love to do the same thing here before I head back. Well, I'll tell you what, Michael, you've made your pitch. If anyone gets in touch with us, David will share your number. If there's a family like to have a Sin City resident in Vegas is amazing. I haven't been there in a while, but you can't even describe what Las Vegas is like. You have to actually see it and live it because it's unbelievable. That's true. Uh, I appreciate it's the like time. The Grand Canyon, you have to see it with your own eyes. But oh. yeah, I paid for my night uh, at the campground tonight. But you know, Friday night, I'd love to you know go kibitz with some folks. I'll, I'll even buy the groceries. thanks for this michael enjoy the rest of your stay hopefully we can hook you up with a place to stay with a local family sure thank you sir you're welcome all the best all right, there you go, Michael from Vegas. All right, very quickly before we get to the end of the program, Chase the Ace tonight, the Arnold's Cove, Arnold's Cove Lions Club. The prize is up to $14,352.70. So it's tonight. They got the 50-50 on the go. The bar opens at 6.30. So Arnold's Cove Lions Club chasing the Ace again tonight. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host. Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.